The Big News Coming Soon podcast is proudly sponsored by BRB Homes. BRB Homes is Ireland's number one award-winning manufacturer of factory-built homes. We take your home from start to finish. Our homes are A-rated and meet planning regulations. We build to your requirements and your budget. The cost includes your home being turnkey and our chartered engineer's fees. Please get in touch for reviewing of our show homes a brochure or for more information let brb homes take the stress out of your build check out brbhomes.ie one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care that's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. This one is a special one. I'm delighted to be joined by our show sponsor and the MD of our show sponsor, although I think that makes you cringe a little bit, Donald, does it, when you hear MD before your name? Donald Byrne. Yes, very down to man, no. MD is too much of a title for me. We are here today live at Byrne Rapid Build and the first thing I want to say, Donald, is thank you very much indeed for putting your faith in us and sponsoring the podcast this season. We really appreciate it. Not at all. Delighted to be on board. We're listening to your sh- podcast last year. Loved it. Loved the honesty of it. And uh, we always try and support Mayo and Mayo companies, anyone that's up and coming. So we're delighted to be on board. There's loads I want to talk about today and we'll get into the nitty gritty of Burn Rapid Build in a little while. But I want to talk about Donald Byrne, first of all, because everyone that has been a guest on my podcast, and I've said this over and over again, I've really admired and I really look up to. And you are one of those people. And the reason I admire you so much is because you're just a workhorse and you've always been a workhorse. When did you first know that you had that entrepreneurial streak in you? Uh, from a young age, I, I was washing cars at the side of the house. So if, if mam and dad had friends over, I'd be there, give me the keys to the car, and I wouldn't ask for money. I'd go out and I'd wash the car, but I'd do a super job in it. And of course, they'd fucking pay you well. So I started young, and then I was picking stones with a local contractor, milking cows, driving tractors as I got older, labelling them broccoli. So it was always in us. What age were you when you were washing the cars? 10, 11, around that age. Maybe a little bit younger, maybe nine. 
but took good pride in it and then if someone landed with a right good car you got to move it like you sit into it but it would be more or something like that which was rare but our house was always people in it because the outfit would be recording music and man was involved with community development so there was always cars to be cleaned and what did you want to do then when you were that age had you had you any aspirations to be anything i didn't i loved taking stuff apart and putting it back together and look i didn't know what i wanted to do in school i hated national school but I love secondary school, love the practical subjects, love the football team. I was involved in the football team, was captain of the senior team, played a bit of Mayo on the 15, on the 16, um, loved drama, hated uh, normal subjects. Now, I was diagnosed dyslexia maybe about 10 and had to go for classes on Saturdays and I hated that. And it, it was a stigma attached to it. I didn't do it fucking reading, drove me nuts. So I really flourished when I went into secondary school because of the, the wide variety of, of subjects. Did you get involved in drama clubs? Did. We had a school musical. I was the fiddler on the roof. Um, loved that. Was in no drama club. Was always imitating the unbelievables. And for anyone that's friends with me on Snapchat knows that. Obsessed with Pat Short. John Kinney would do stand-up, you know, would have always been doing skits at Christmas and stuff like that at home for the family. What age are you now? I'm 35 since July. So what was the first business then? What was the first real business that you went into? So the first real business um, would have been Killian Construction. So I left school, uh, secondary school, went to college to study construction management. And the only reason I went to college is because my girlfriend at the time was going to college and she had applied for some course in Galway and I put down construction management in Galway because uh, I was labouring on a block clear and thought it'd be grand. I took college seven, eight months. Not, what am I on about? No, three months. And I had saved a lovely dash of money labouring on the block clear and I had it all spent on drinking taffs and bollocks. And so I went working for a builder who I'd been working with at the weekends and was with him for a year or two and he was turning down a load of work because it was the boom. So I said to him, look, would you mind if I set up a smaller company, took on some of the smaller work, extensions, garages? No problem. So my village in Ahamore is Killian. Set up a company called Killian Construction Sole trader, wasn't limited or anything big, didn't know anything about bookwork. Was tipping along, lovely. And then, of course, wanted to be like the big lads, bought sites, big jeeps, diggers. Then the crash came, had to send it all back, had to refinance, get myself organised. So that was my first big company, or, or first time being self-employed. Learned a huge amount. So Killian Construction came out of the boom, did it? It did, come out of the boom, and it went with a boom. Uh, I bought a site, or I had a site, a family site, got pl- planning for three houses. It took me nearly two years to get planning. Mayo County Council turned me down. I had to go to Board Planola. By the time I got the planning, the crash had come. And just when I applied for planning, decentralisation was coming to Tubbercurry. I had two of the houses sold off the plans. If it was granted the first time, I was probably elected. But I wasn't, and I got caught. Now, so the first house I built, I moved into it myself. I moved in just before my 21st birthday. All the rest of my friends were off to Australia. I stayed, and I was disgusted at the time, but now when they're all coming home and can't get mortgages, it's like, I have a tracker mortgage. Thanks be to God I didn't go. And how did you get over the boom? Did you lose everything? I did, yeah. No, everything went. It was. I remember the day I, I got rid of my I had a brand new Toyota Land Cruiser, and I had to, to sell it for far less than it was worth. Um, tough stuff, definitely. Uh, started doing Nixers, anything that was going, there was no job. And luckily, a break came up with a neighbour of ours driving a milk van. So he was delivering milk for Glambia, and I was so delighted to get three, four days a week doing that. Um, 
I I was delivering to Tesco's Dunn Super Value uh, up at four in the morning and I enjoyed it. I again meeting people, chatting people. I became great friends with the storemen and the people in the shops, and we had wide variety of customers. And then after two years or so, I, I it started to drain on me, you know, because I was going nowhere. I could see it going nowhere. So what happened was we we myself and two other lads had run a barn dance for the Mayor's Common Hospice. And we had seen one in Bell, saw it worked and decided we'd do this ourselves. Power washed out a slashed house. We had Sean Kane and the Phoenix Show Band. Labamba, sorry. They were, they were the Phoenix Show Band. And we brought a thousand people to a slashed house in the sticks and said, fuck, this could work. So um, the first year we had a publican who came on board and we knew nothing about bear work. And he donated us a thousand euros. And we managed to get 9,000, we'll say, from ticket sales and whatever else. So we gave 10,000 hospice. And we thought we were great men. And the second year, a publican who I knew very well at the time, Lee Melwood, said to me in Coney Island Bear, you got done in the bear, big time. He said, I'll come on board next year and we'll donate everything the bear makes to the cause. You know, staff will work for free. We'll just pay what it costs to get the drink. We done that. And the next year, we gave 40,000 euros to hospice. The door took 15 and the bear took the balance. And I realised that the public in the first year shafted us. And it was my first real education to, you know, people will take advantage of you. So Liam um, had brought a fella to help him at the time who I'd known from drinking his pub called Finbar Burke. And the three of us decided, look, if we can get 2,000 people to a slashed house, surely to fuck, we'd bring 5,000 people to the West of Ireland for a huge music festival. So we organised a thing called Westfest. And uh, we set up a company called Ebb Festivals, Elwood, Burn and Burke. And we knew that, you look, you couldn't have a slashed house, but you needed a roof because this weather was so bad. We brought in a big top ten from England. We booked Imelda May, Sharon Shannon, Damien Dempsey, Ryan Sheridan, The Coronas, Bagatelle, Brush Shields. It was a great lineup, And everyone was excited about it. It was going to be in the village of Ahamore. I had bus airing on board and everyone said it won't work. And it was working till we signed a contract with She would not play within a certain area. Okay, that's how it worked. And you'd pay her a big lump but change up front. Now, she was massive at the time. Oh, Barack Obama had just come to Ireland. She had played on the stage. She was everywhere. Same with the Coronas. She announced a gig in the county the night before us. And our ticket was a Saturday ticket or Sunday ticket or the weekend ticket. And I think the weekend ticket was 100 and it was 50 for each day. In the other venue, she was 25, 30 quid. And her first night was a complete fucking flop. And the second night, brilliant. But you needed both nights to go quite well to make money. So I remember the feeling thinking like we got shafted and... She wouldn't, uh, I, I've never told anyone this, but she wouldn't come in the car. We had Audis got from Connolly Motors and all our guests were staying in the park hotel in Kilchman. We had drivers dropping them back and over. I insisted on a Range Rover. We didn't have a Range Rover, but a friend of mine had a helicopter and he flew her in by helicopter and it was like, oh, everyone had to be, you'd swear to God it was fucking Bono that was coming. Like everyone had to be in lockdown and it, while the rest of them, the Cronas were having the crack with them and it was lovely interface with them. Then they backed in the car when they were finished, took everything out of the dressing rooms. We'll say all the rider that was left there, all the drink. A park hotel rang us the next day, come over, all your stuff is here if you'd like to collect it. Put an off taste, you know, in my mouth of how the industry worked. And what happened with their playing up the road in the venue put an awful taste in our mouth. So hang on. First of all, she wouldn't go in the Audi. She demanded a Range Rover. Yes. And then you swapped the Range Rover for a helicopter. I didn't have a Range Rover. So but you I got had a helicopter. A fella, I had a fella that had a helicopter, Declan Foley, <laughs> pair plays from Joe Welch. Declan lived in Kilchamaw. Deck, would you pick her up sound, lifted her and flew her in. 
And like it, it was mad stuff. Like, hang on, the the helicopter went from Kilshamar to Ahamor. Yeah, how long of a distance is that? That was a five minute flight. And Declan had been sort of knocking around taking pictures as we were building the whole thing because it was a city shot up in the village of Ahamor off fast, and it was it was big stuff back in the time. You mightn't remember, but if what you year was it? it? Roughly two thousand and eleven. Wow. No, ten, ten, ten. And how 10, did 11. you how did you logistically? Get everyone in and out of Ahamor. How many uh, people? We bussed, so we, bus Aaron put on shuttle buses and we had our own shuttle buses. Um, we had car parks set up, we had campsites set up. Oh, it was brilliant. It's like the ploughing championship. It was nearly. just like the ploughing. So we had kilometres of Harris Finson. Um, kilometres of it. it. It was brilliant. And all the local lads came work for us because there was no work in Ireland at the time. Now, fair play to uh, Elwood and Burke backed it. I had no money. And I felt after it was over, like just devastated that we, we weren't going to make, like we were all of these plans that, you know, we we're going to have 30 or 40 grand a piece out of it and how great it was going to be. And I remember just that feeling that morning, I think three Somali rang from Midwest the last morning and I was in bed, it was the morning after and we'd start taking it down. And, you know, that's when the atmosphere is over. You have to pick up rubbish and take down the fence. And she goes, will you do an interview? And I said, no, she goes, just say a few words. And I said, it was great success. Thank you very much to everyone. But when we balanced the books, like we were down money and I felt that I let the two boys down. So out of everything this bad comes something good. Uh, my wife was teaching at the time up in Chum Ceylon National School. She wasn't my wife at the time. She was my girlfriend. And um, one of her children, their father worked in the Olympic Park. And he'd learned or had been at the event and said, would you do an interview for the London Olympics? So I rang him and explained, look, I don't work in the event industry. I'm a builder that ended up driving a fucking milk van and ran a few events for charity. No. You what you did in Ahamor is what you're doing in London. You need to believe in it. Really. Do an interview. So I hadn't uh, Skype. My wife had a laptop from school. She downloaded Skype. I hadn't. I had an email address. Done the Skype interview. Sitting at the kitchen table in suit top and a pair of tracky bottoms, and like was nervous as hell and didn't think it went well. But Jesus, I was at a funeral in Ballyhonnes. Uh, the poor old minister, uh, his, uh, his, his real name was the minister, uh, Walden from Ballyhonis, and I had two pints of Gartelinis. And I remember I was skint at the time. I had, we'll just say, 20 quid in the wallet and said, I'm going to go in here for four pints. And on my second pint, Marion rang me. And she goes, because again, I would never check an email. It didn't come to your phone back then. She said, I've opened up my laptop. Or come outside. So I went out and she was sitting in the car and she was crying. I said, what's wrong? She, she had her laptop with her. She goes, look at the email, you got the job. Now, this was no ordinary job. It was, you had an office in Canary Wharf. You were working for LOCOG, which was the London Organising Committee, the Olympic Games Direct. You had a company, X5. You had a huge salary, I think at the time, was 60,000 sterling. Like, this is going from your 350 week on the milk van. And uh, I was like, but sure, I'm going to get found out. <laughs> I said, you know, sure, I can't go out there. And she, we went in to celebrate, and I remember... We had four pints with friends of ours. It was brilliant. And I went to London. And she came with me out of knock. It was a Sunday. They put you up in a hotel for two weeks. You had your induction the next morning. And for anyone that has never been to Canary Wharf, like it's, it's a fucking amazing place. It's an island on itself. There's a bridge on it and a bridge off it. It's the banking district. It's all skyscrapers. The place is spotless. It's all granite. Everyone has a suit and cufflinks and ties. You've got like a Porsche garage, Ferrari garage, Rolex shops. It's not your normal London. And I was peck from the milk fan, the builder. What did you do? Did you head into Eddie Murphy's before you <coughs> went over? What, what I, happened? And like a bollocks, I had a suit, a briefcase that Leo Farkin gave me because I had to, 
look like I knew what I was at and I, I didn't have any bags. And I remember saying to Leo and he landed with this briefcase and it was uh, left in the back of his house that he was and you know when you open it up the little bag with the sand in it that was in it and we dusted it off and I remember in Knock Airport standing with this because I couldn't check it in I had everything else checked in and when I landed that morning been the only dick with a briefcase and I remember thinking oh my god <laughs> because everyone else had a lot of the people that were been inducted with me that day had been to the Sydney Olympics they had done Beijing there, it's it's a bug. People get addicted to it and they travel around. And the company stays the same, but the first letter changes. So if it's Sydney Olympics, it's SOCOG, London LOCOG. And I remember, you know, going through there were so many acronyms and how the park worked and security and threat levels. And in the first induction, thinking, look, I'm way out of my depth here. But then when I actually got settled into it and understand what the job was, and I was on the 22nd floor of... One Churchill Place, huge building, glass. I was sitting right beside the window looking across at, at London and thinking, like, this mental stuff that I'm going to find out. What age were you here? Whew. Uh, Jesus, man, I 24, maybe, 25. And had you been to London much at this stage? I had never been to London. Never? Never. Maybe small as a child, I'd never been to London. We had, I'd been to Spain and I'd done all the lads' holidays, like... Grand Canaria, Lanzarote, yeah. Santa Panza. Panza. Yeah, but yeah. out of knock, like, and never done London. And wow. luckily, my wife had a cousin over there, uh, Fanny Ann, we called her, lovely woman. And uh, my wife went out to visit her, and she picked us up at the airport and taught us about the Oyster Card and how the tube worked. And, you know, uh, so Marion got me an Oyster Card, and we were staying in uh, the Holiday Inn in Canning Town, which was dog rough, but it was only one tube stop from... Canary Wharf and I thought like this place is rough and then you had to go and get an apartment and luckily a lad from Ballyhonis uh, was um, John Morley he he was in Canary Wharf he was working for Ballymore Properties his uncle Sean Mulrain selling houses and uh, selling apartments and John knew and said look I used to stay at this fella we'll see does he still have a room rang him Gary Chung was the name a Chinese fella out the road went out to meet Gary and I remember the I, I, I had two weeks in the hotel. My two weeks was up and I had no place got. And John uh, had said that Gary will meet you tomorrow, we'll say. Right? And uh, I had no money to go staying in the hotel another week. So I went down to your one and said at the desk, uh, and you got a business card. Within fucking three days, I had this fancy business card. Donor Burn Operations Manager, uh, Common Domain Olympic Park. And I explained what that Common Domain piece in the middle. And I went down to her and I said... Um, they have my apartment ready. I'm going to need the room for another two or three days. And she goes, oh, that's no problem. On the same account, I said, yes. Didn't know who, you know, low cog or paying for it. And thanks be the fuck, she said, yes. Met Gary Chung the next day. Uh, oh, I knew John, lovely fella. He had, you know, when do you want to move in? I said, tomorrow. And he started laughing at me. He goes, oh, there's a guy moving out in the morning. You'll have to clean the room. So I remember back at the office Googling, you know, where do I get bed linen? Because... Uh, Canary Wharf there isn't a duns or a pennies down the road I had no fucking care I couldn't get on the tube with all that stuff quilts and, and there was an Argos and I got the bus to whatever stop and it all printed off Google where to do it went into Argos got the cheapest pillows the cheapest quilts got set up and then started to get settled into it so my boss was Australian and on my second week he handed in his he, he sent an email of course that was all new to me all these emails I copied the whole country in it that he was moving on to bigger and better things and how's there bollocks like, how am I going to learn what my role is? So he was trying to explain to me that 
The reason they hired me is I had a construction background, but I had an events background. And the Olympic Park at the time was a huge construction site, and we need to test every venue. But to do that, we need someone that link in with the builders, get us into that venue safely, get us out of it, la la la. So I then hit for the Olympic Park to do my induction, and they take your biometrics, your fingerprints. The security was unbelievable. And when I got in there, I was introduced to Park Operations, which was Langer Orker running it. And there were more men in my stamp. There were construction guys. And they had the control of this. And we were all these airy-fairy events people in Canary Wharf that hadn't a clue. And as far as they were concerned, this was a building site. So they were unbelievable. Like Way up the, the food chain, Dave Peacock was the head man with Langer Orker. And he was so sound. And like this book would be on mega books. You know, and I was going to be his point of contact really towards Locog and he showed me how it worked. So the area I was given was the common domain. So every venue had a manager. Uh, Velodrome, basketball arena, stadium. And all the ground in between was called the common domain. And that was going to be my baby, which was pedestrian screening areas as you come in like the airport. Vehicle screening areas, same as at the airport. Pubs, port loose, toilets. Um, bins. Bins, shops, all that stuff. That's huge responsibility. Massive. But again, feeling very overwhelmed by it. But when you got to see it, like, I used to, because I had the money straight away to start to come home all the time. And then when I got a few pounds, we block book flights in 1999 all year long. If you didn't come home, you didn't come home. I had picked up the X5, knock around the park all day Saturday, Sunday. I covered every inch of it. I'd been nosing in and out through the stadium, learned every inch of it. I knew it like the back of my hand. So when it came time then for test events, Bang on, no problem. We need uh, Hurst Vincent, a kilometre long walkway safe. I'd have to go back to the lads and say, we need to close this area for construction, this event, whatever. No problem. Had you budget constraints? Yes, at the start, but when you learned how it worked, uh, there was, the budget was endless. The money that was thrown away and wasted was unbelievable. Um, And I realised, okay, there's money to be made here. And in a way that they were paying over the top for stuff. So I didn't, Try to save the money where I knew, look, you've been shafted here. Stop putting out the big fancy logo going for the Tinder. I'd make a call, save money. And and that's where my opportunity came to make the money back for the lads in Ireland I lost. So they got into trouble, the, the London Olympics, with uh, teddy bears that had the logo that were sourced back to a factory in China that were made by children. And everything had to be sustainable and it had to be traceable, blah, 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 blah. And one of the big jobs I had were my areas, because it was outdoor area, outdoor furniture. And I could not get a company to meet um, all the protocols. And if they did meet it, so if you bought a, a timber picnic table, the company that made it had to replant a tree that was cut down. Okay, and the nuts and bolts couldn't come from China, which is very hard. And the one that did was absolutely rightness. The cost was astronomical. So I was backing over every week now at this stage. Because I had the 1999 flights and they were brilliant. Into Knox, Saturday morning, Marion picked me up and I was meeting with the lads. So we'll say I was five, six months there at this stage. So I said to them, there's, there's an opportunity here. We need to source all these outdoor materials and we need they need to be sustainable and you need to be reasonably priced. And they did that. And Lehman Finbar went around Ireland, found a company in the Tyrone especially that done most of it, set up a company called Direct2 Limited. They tendered. I wasn't involved in the tender inside of it. That went to procurement. <laughs> you weren't. I wasn't. It had to be all above board. <laughs> Go on. And I, they won. And uh, we brought Arctics and Arctics of outdoor furniture from Ireland to the Olympic Park, drawn over by Brian Cunningham Transport in Castlebar. And I remember watching his truck pulling into the stadium and thinking, fucking proud day. I done this. Yeah. And then 
we took all the lads that were laid off in our village and we flew them over and they put together eight or nine hundred picnic tables and we went in the beer with them now again I wasn't supposed to know them I was their point of contact and it was it was brilliant you know to see all the books I knew they were working on the Olympics came off without a, a fuss and it was brilliant and we had signed a, a thing in the contract that afterwards we may buy back the furniture. But the furniture was all due to go to um, the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow. But the deal fell through. And uh, they rang the boys, would you take the furniture back? And it was back at like a tiny cost. And I was there, no. My vote was no. And Liam and Finbar was there, the resale value. This is, I said, fuck it, lads. We're not in the furniture business. We had a good, and no, and fair play to them. They were right, but it had a sad end. And all the lads came back, took apart all the furniture. Obviously, you know, it never packs up as nice as it comes. And on the last load, they were unloading it in Balahadreen in a warehouse. Uh, Liam fell off the lorry. And he, he, an ambulance came and he sat into it and they got down the road and, the ambulance pulled in, he came into pain, he passed away with internal bleeding. And I remember being back in London after a wedding, we had pulled this off, the Olympics was over, I was now handing the park back to the legacy company, I had ran the big Red Baron idea by the two boys, doing drawings for it, very relaxed, phone rings, Finbar, that had been an accident. And I'd just come back to the apartment, I remember f- just absolutely fallen into a heap. And I rang Marion and I said, I don't know how to do it. I don't know where to go. Get me a flight out of here. I'm hitting for the airport. Hit for the airport and my two good friends had met me in the airport, uh, Leo Farkin and Colin Coyne, and we had to lay poor Liam to rest. And what had been a bad story of Westfest, letting them down, losing the money, to making it all back, making profit, the happy ending story that was going to have a further happy ending was a disaster. So... I went back to London and kept the head down for weeks and debated whether I'd make the bigger baron or bother my head or what I'd do. And then, you know, uh, I had more time to think about it. Liam would have been a great man driving me on. I said, no, we're going to plow on with this. So I came back to Ireland and Finn Barr myself for chats and he goes, I'm in. So the two of us uh, went and got a prototype made in Roscommon. And um, we said the first event would be in memory of him and we approached his family and said, would you allow us to do a big fundraiser in memory of the hospice again at your premises? And the family originally said no and then they came back and said, no, we'd love to. And it was the Big Red Barns, first ever day out, uh, 36 or 7,000 for the Mayor's Common Hospice. And it was sort of, you know... It so was what, what was the Big Red Barn? A modular event structure. So one of the big problems I had in the Olympics was... Marquis bush to my heart. Because we ran test events all year round before the Olympics, snow caved in roofs, heat, there was condensation and sweating. They were mank. And there was no alternative. Country music was huge in the west of Ireland and I thought, look, if we go big and heavy and strong, non-drip roof, it'll stand weather, it'll work. And we'd done that as our first test event. Then we'd done... Uh, Rock and the Green and Colony. So these are built off the American-style barn. Yes, except I sort of used a modular system. I had sketched and looked the way marquees were done in the UK and different buildings. And, came and up did with you a make concept. your own one? I, I outsourced the first one. I gave them the design to do it. Then I, uh, I done a design patent. Uh, then I went on Dragon's Den. But did you, did you buy it or get it made? I got it made for myself. It. I owned it. I bought, got bought it made it. by a manufacturer. Wow. A steel manufacturer. Who made agricultural sheds? He actually built that extension. Uh, a guy from Roscommon. Okay. So we knew it was working, but how did you get the platform to do it? And um, it was very physically, putting it up and take it down. And Finn Barr myself had had a discussion and he had a supply chain for shops of um, confectionery products and he said, it's too heavy for me. 
I have no real interest. I said, right, I'll, I'll take you out of it. And he had put in 25 and I had put in the same. And he goes, look, if I got my 25 back, which was so fair. Yeah. And um, I had applied for Dragon's Den and got it. And we hadn't the contract signed at the time for the buyout. And I did a lot of research for going on Dragon's Den. People that took the money were all disgusted because they'd given away such a huge part of their business for a tiny amount of money at the start. And then people who hadn't took the money done well. And you're guaranteed zero minutes to a max of 12 minutes. It's with a company called Shinowin Television. You sign all these contracts. I watched who got the 12 minutes. And everyone got the 12 minutes was controversial. So the rules of the dinner, if you disclose new information, the offer is withdrawn. And my plan was, if an offer was made, I disclosed new information. And the information was, I had bought Finbar out. I hadn't because it wasn't signed, but it was new information. So I went in the day and I was in there an hour and a half. And... Um, the interview yeah, was an hour and a half. The, the, yeah, the full dragon sitting in front of you was an hour and a and half. And they cut it down to 12, 12 minutes. 12 minutes. Wow. And um, myself and Gavin Duffy went at it head to head where he argued with me about licensing laws and I had the licensing law book with me. I had the law off by heart, which I can recite to this day. The Intoxicating Liquor Act of 1962 states an occasional license should not be granted beneath the canvas structure. All that was edited out. But it showed Gavin Duffy argued with me that I didn't know the law. It showed me a little bit at the end and I was like, fuck. But... Barry O'Sullivan offered me the money. From He was head of Cisco, Ireland. Can and you remember what you were asking for? Do you remember even the percentage you I were do. given it was It was 15% I was given away, I think. All right. Uh, and it was 80 or 100 grand. Right. And I said, thank you very much for the offer, Barry. What do you think you can bring to the business so to, to lead it on more? And la, 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 la. And then I said... Uh, he goes, well, I need to address this equity issue with your business partner. You're 50-50, but you're here. And I said, well, look, I have my business partner bought out. And, whoa, new information, la, 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 I'm out. It sh- it was on RT, the first episode, it was on the ad, the whole lot. And within 24 hours, we ordered the second baron. It blew up. You know, social media wasn't big. Twitter was in it, Facebook was in it. But so many people watched RT1, like there was no Dodgebox or Netflix. And... um. The big call I got that brought me to the second baron was a fellow called Dan Kelly uh, from a place called Foster's in Donegal rang me and he said uh, that he wanted to bring Riverdance to Donegal. And I was pretty much laughing at him, thinking, look, I brought West Fest to Hamor. You're not going to get Riverdance to play outside Dublin or Belfast. You're Copper Savannah, like good fucking lad. You know, the more chance of Bono playing in Hamor. <laughs> and uh, he said, I'll meet you on uh, Casey's Roscommon. I'm delivering a washer. He had a company that sold uh, casher washers. So I met him and he, geez, he was a sound fella. He goes, no, my son is with Riverdance. My other son had, had passed away from cancer. We're doing this to the hospice. Riverdance are playing. So I said, bang on. This is my quote. He said, we're happy to go with that. And I ordered the second barn. So I could seat a thousand people. So I went up and met his daughter, Sharon Kelly. She's Robert Mazel's manager now. I know Sharon. Yeah. And oh, she gave me enough time. I, first time I met her, like she goes, you're full of shit. She's you shrewd. Know? Oh, but we're best of buddies now. She's like a female you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would put the two E now. I wouldn't like to be stuck in a lift with the two E now. That'll be torture. Oh, well, she was well able. Yeah. Uh, and I'll never forget first meeting her. And she go, where's that piece of paper, though? And you said you'd have it. I said, it's out in the Jeep. Everything is in that fucking Jeep. But uh, we got it built. And um, I started to learn about the Kellys in Fosses. And there, there was a helicopter dropping out of the sky, like Donna Kelly is here to see us. And he owned KN Networks, you know, KN Networks. And then there was a raffle. And the first prize was a Toyota car from Kelly Toyota. Second prize was a trip on Tim Kelly's jet. Um, and he was Kelly Communications. And he, they were all multimillionaires. And sure, gosh, I here hadn't researched anyone. Not that it mattered, but you should always research your customer. So I bought a ticket to support them. 
and the tickets were 25 quid or whatever and first night was unbelievable Riverdance coming out on stage it gave me such pride my family came up to see it like it was class and then the next night was Robert Mazel and met him and we hit for home and the phone rang around fucking half one in the morning Sharon Kelly and I said oh balls there's a problem I shouldn't have come home and she goes you're after winning the second prize, you bollocks. What was it? I said, uh, Tim Kelly's private jet. <laughs> so I said, what <laughs> happens when we're taking up? She goes, the girl in Tim Kelly's office being char- er, in contact with you. You pick what airport you want to go from. You get to bring four people. You stay in this hotel in England. You get to go to a show in, um, what's the name of that fancy theatre place in England? I'm off for names. Come on. The O2? No. The, the fancy. Where you go to see drama. Like, oh, sure. How would I know? Uh, I went to see The Commitments. What was the name? The Commitments. Broadway, you bollocks. You went to see The Commitments the, in Broadway? It was class. Oh, the, the musical? Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, anyways, his jet lands. Oh, we've done a raffle at home among I'm all family I'm laughing here members. because, like Father Ted, it's not unusual for the person <laughs> running the raffle to win the raffle. Number 11. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> we've done a raffle at home with the family to see who could come and my mother and father's name came out so we get to knock you don't check in as normal you sit at the concierge desk they bring you in the sideway go through security uh, straight out the door to the plane TK1 on the number plane on the tail of the plane never forget it got on pilot puts your bag in the back like it was class so we played cards going over drinking champagne and when we landed on a private airfield there's this Bentley waiting for us TK1 on the number plate wow and like I remember the, the carpet in the Bentley had been like such fluffy like you wouldn't want to wear shoes into it and Sam his driver uh, never forget him say, telling me you know as we were going to his hotel about where Tim came from so Tim's story was he was a cabbie in London, left Donegal, and he was driving around uh, two builders full time, like uh, their driver. And he sort of said to them, Where do you see the niche in the market? This is back in the 80s, 70s. And they said, Telecom. You know, phones are going to be everywhere soon, and, and cable television is coming. And the only people doing telecom was BT, like Aircom here. And now he got a few old vans, hired a few ex BT fellas, and started running the, the telecoms in direct for you. And it was the first ever people doing that. And Chernow K Networks and Kelly Communications are everywhere. And uh, he's a billionaire. So I said to Sam, any chance you tee up the meeting? And he goes, oh, I'll, I'll try my best. So when we come out of the commitments, uh, there's the Bentley waiting. Like everyone thought we were fucking billionaires. Uh, sat in, he goes, Tim is going to see you down his other pub, the gallery. La, la, la. So we took off. There's, you know, a, a big S-class outside, red carpet. That's his care. We park behind him, like pure red fucking carpet stuff. In we go, lovely man. Chat to him, and he was so down to earth and telling me how it happened. And, you know, he still has a house in Fosses and total down to earth fella. And I thought, fuck. And that sort of gave me the real drive then, that anything is possible. And I've talked so long without you asking a question. Not at all. It's interesting. Go on. And and that's what drove me on, I suppose. Did he did he invest anything in you? He didn't. And I, at the time, sorry. I were don't... you kind of hinting at it, or were no, you? I wa- no, I didn't need it at the time because when I left Dragon's Den, I needed money. You're right. And my brother-in-law, Brian Cunningham, he owns Cunningham Transport in Casper, said to me, I'll give you a few pounds and I'll sign his guarantor in the bank. We'll get a loan. You don't need no Dragon. And he done that and I paid him back after two years. And he was so sound and so grateful to him. But, you know, if I ever sold out, that's what I'd like to do. Is I'd love to give a young person the chance, like Liam and Finbar did for me originally, like Brian did. And it, it look, without him, I wouldn't have done it. But I didn't need the dragons. And uh, look, after that, 
we tried to be innovative. We launched a new product every year. So I entered Mayo's Best Young Entrepreneur. I won that. I won 20 grand prize money. You had to have an idea. My idea was the little white chapel. And that time the yes vote had just been passed. So same-sex marriage was allowed in Ireland. But the problem was in order to get married. It was a hotel room. You know, there was no church that would accept them. And I was there. We'll make a mobile church the same as the barn. And wow. we made the little white chapel. And I went on to represent Mayo in the Connacht final. And the Connacht final was double the money. I think it was 40 grand. And uh, on the panel was, uh, so the local enterprise office organised it with the Leo uh, mentors. So the, a Leo from every county and an independent judge who was a so-called entrepreneur millionaire. And I won't name the man at the time, but uh, I gave a serious pitch. Now, I had it off like clockwork and I had done the Dragon's Den and I felt I was invincible. And uh, first question out of the entrepreneur's mouth, it's an odd thing to come in here and tell lies. And I said, what lies did I tell? He goes, I've never heard of a marquee blown away. Never heard of condensation. You know, you're making these problems up. You've created a product to solve a problem that doesn't exist. And I was sort of, well, they do exist. Because I was in London and I started getting defensive and it was a bad start. But there's videos on YouTube of marquees blown away. I know, but of course, bollocky Bill at the time, I didn't come up with that answer. Right. I came out of the room and the girl with Leo, Breed of Fox, I'll never forget her. She, she followed me out. She goes, you were the best pitch today. I was the last pitch. She goes, you were actually employing people. You, this product exists. The rest of these people here with ideas. I'd, one person had a running bottle with no slush effect that didn't exist. It was in prototype. And the other person had a video game. So I was like gutted. And when the results were going to bread out, I knew I wasn't going to win. And he read um, out the Why results. do you think he was so... I don't know. But I was like a lunatic because I had banked on the money. I fucking was sure the money was mine because I had given, I was employing people. I had a product. Yeah. I wasn't in this fairy tale prototype, but Barnes weren't sexy. Video games are sexy. The word tech is sexy. And I came out angry and I remember a good friend of mine at the time saying, revenge is a dish best served cold. Just stay quiet, put your head down, do your business. And the day came. Plowing championships came and we had grown way bigger now at this stage. I had little at the Plowing Championships, Europe's first two-story structure. So let's come back there for a second, yeah. though. When you went to the Connacht uh, finals, was that with, with the Little White Chapel as well? Th- that was with my... I had won Mayo, right? Yeah. I had uh, got the prize money for that, and I had built the chapel. Yeah. It, then now I was representing Mayo in the Connacht final of the Best Young Entrepreneurs. Right. So the, we were against the rest of Connacht, and everyone else in my category... Well, there was three in the category. And the business was still the Little White Chapel? No, it was the Big Red Baron, but the Little White Chapel was a product. Right. So I was, my plan was to add a product every year. So first year, Big Red Baron, second year, Little White Chapel. Third year was Europe's first two-story modular structure. And right. Little came to me and said, we pay per square foot of the plowing. It's, it's expensive retail. We want... A second floor. We want a second we floor. We want to go up. And but we want a second floor that will carry weight. Mm. So we built a two-story modular structure and we lifted up a Toyota Land Cruiser and put it up in it. And it was to hold a train. like. And I had that. Um, so the year, I, the next year we came to the modular homes we come to. But I was at the plowing this first year with my two-story structure, right? So this is maybe my fourth year at the plowing, right? And the worst storm ever came. So I had uh, Irish Limousine Cattle Society in a barn. I had Pink Lady Apples, I had Little in the two-story, and I had the Little White Chapel with myself and Sean Kane. and a storm came, and the plowing was closed on the second day. And we were all sitting in the car park as suppliers, we were allowed in, and you could see the marquees going, you could see the whole place going to shit. Yeah. And when we went in and drove through it, like it was like a bomb site, and we stayed and helped people fix up their marquee, and I remember going into Tullamore, it was like St. Stephen's Day, the place packed, because no one could get in, it was closed, and they all went in the beer. But after that, 
the phone was hopping with suppliers who didn't want a marquee the next year. So the phone call came from that man's company and said, we want your structure for the ploughing. Stop. Would you come up and present? And I said, oh, I'd gladly come up. So he wasn't in the meeting, but all his right-hand men were. And what's the price? And I put up the price. And I said, that's the price. You're mad, dear. Forget about it. I said, that sound. Blow away again next year. Yeah. So they came back and said, right, we'll give you the price. So the next year, didn't the bad fucking weather come too? And beside them, I think, was the cementals in a polytunnel and it took flight. And they were still standing. So your man goes, come down, we need to get a picture. The cementals were in a polytunnel. Cemental cattle were in a polytunnel and the wind brought it. So uh, the, the guy that asked me down was the American fella and the owner was there and he wouldn't stand in the picture. And I was there like, you know, good enough, yeah. Just wouldn't be seen with you. Just, he, I, he wished out about it, first of all, because he could remember the Connacht final as well as I could. And then we had come to the rescue and then it done what we said it would do. And I often just thought like, you know, you're a, if I'm ever anyways as big as you are, I wouldn't be as stuck up. But was there something personal there? Like, I don't know was what just, there was. What's the problem? It was, it was great that we ended up coming to the rescue. Like, and yeah. that's why I'd always say to people, you know, don't go on the tack immediately now. You know, revenge is a dish best served cold. Karma is a bastard, and I firmly believe in it. And uh, and I was sorry, I went off right. So, how many structures did you have then at the ploughing? In our peak, I think we had six, maybe seven. And then we done. I met probably one of the most amazing men at the ploughing championships. The ploughing is an amazing place. And uh, Paul Sykes, who was head of the Irish Limousine Cattle Site at the time, gave us our first opportunity, and he rang me. He'd be always watching out for me and said. There's a man here you need to meet. And I remember I was down looking at a McHale stand. I came down, he goes, this is Jimmy McGee. Uh, Jimmy, how are we getting on? He goes, he owns a company in Athlone called Athlone Extrusions. Go in there, the two of you and have a cup of tea. So I went in and had a cup of tea and Jimmy was saying, I can't believe this went up in a day, you know. And he said, I could do with a few temporary structures in our factory. We cannot get planning, but we, we need extra storage. I said, sound, I'll come down after the plow. So I went down after the plow and he bought a barn off me and we put it up and we formed a great relationship. But he said to me, do you ever think about the houses? I said, I do, and I have a concept done, but I don't think it'll work. People in Ireland are obsessed with fucking block build. He goes, it'll work. I'm telling you, it'll work. Now, he told me his story, no more than Tim Kelly's, which is pretty unbelievable. Left school at a very young age. Um, went into a night course doing welding. The lecturer was working in this Athlone extrusion place, said, come in, they look for a forklift driver. We can work. Went in, became a sales rep. Um, then he became a director, and he sold the company for 52 million. Like, it was unbelievable, the story. And it's so down to earth. Now, I'm on about no ears and graces. The same as Kelly. And uh, I went back and I, I pushed the design with the house. And I told my father-in-law I was doing it. He goes, I think I have a customer, neighbour of mine. Went to him. Yes, I was brilliant. So the prototype isn't wasted. So I'd done a deal uh, with them, put it up. And then the next one, the lady who bought I said, do you mind if we bring your house to the ploughing first? I'll give you a discount, three or four grand. Sound. You built a house... And then you brought it to the ploughing. Plow and then you built it at the ploughing. I built it at the ploughing, set it up fully, everything in it. And uh, it was unbelievable. And it, we sold so many off it. That was it. Once we brought the house to the ploughing, sure, it took off. What kind of house was it? It was the, the exact same of the one bed over there. Uh, deck, Just describe it to L-shaped us. L-shaped deck, uh, open plan kitchen living. Looks like bathroom. a timber cabin. Yes. And but it looks like a, it doesn't look like your average log cabin. It's no. Like a, it looks like a, a more high end, like something you'd see in Canada. Yes, and we, we sort of researched it with the ones that were in Ireland. So if we take the ones that were in Ireland, they were all coming in from um, Scandinavia. They were logged, you know, one log sitting on top of the other. 
they were sitting on the ground, they were absorbing moisture, they were expanding, they were contracting, rising damp, they had no room for pulling cables, all that stuff. So we'd done a, a SWOT analysis on the weakness and we designed one that had skip all those. It was off the ground, there was voids in the walls for cables, it was well insulated, la la la. And we were in Ballyhut. We started off, we had a mushroom tunnel rented at Ahamore. We didn't do the house in that, but we'd done some fabrication. Then we moved to Ballyhonas to um, Juice with the Old Tile Centre. And we made the prototypes there. And then after that ploughing, the foam was so mental, I needed a yard. I had originally bought a building at Knock Airport. And again, I learned politics awful fast. I will remember uh, I had, we won a few great awards and I was in, the SFA Award, Small Firms Association, I had been shortlisted and we were at a workshop in the Hudson Bay Hotel and the auctioneer rang and closed the deal on a building up at the airport. And it was a building that Monsignor Horden had built and believe it or not, there was a cinema in it. And it was for making movies and he hoped that a company, you know, would come, build it and they would come like he did the airport. I don't know what for reason it never worked out. But the building was for sale for 11 years and... I was so excited that, you know, the airport was going to be a great place to be, la la la. Anyways, auctioneer, deal done Friday night. I celebrated like mad at the SV Awards. Ring on Monday, meet you now at your deposit. There's another bid. I said, there can't be another bid. This place is empty for 11 years. Yes, I, I, I bought this Friday. We closed the sale. Yeah. And he said, uh, there's another bid. The person who owned it uh, was, was involved in, in the clergy. Uh, sorry, the clergy owned it. Oh, okay. Go on. And I had went to that person at the start and said, I want you to do a deal with me. Uh, I, I don't want going through an auctioneer. Let's, let's do this deal now, together, the two of us. Monsignor Horden was a great friend of my father's. He had gone around fundraising with him. He built the fucking airport. Let's be the first bit of industry up there. Let's close this now and you do me a great deal. Both of us will cut the ribbon together. It'll be the story of industry at Knock Airport. And he goes, uh, no, you speak to the auctioneer. And... Uh, the exact words of the time, and controversial to me because it stands out in my head, Monsignor Horden left this place in debt and I'm cleaning it up. And I was thinking, look, there would be no knock without Monsignor Horden. There would be no airport. And I got a, it was a bad start. Anyways, I went to the auctioneer. I was bidding back and over for a little while. I closed with the auctioneer. So that Monday, anyways, there's another bidder. And I smelt a rat. And I said, well, I'll tell you one thing. I'll make this dear. Now, I had probably another 20 grand in the pot. We'll just say it was at 180. I brought it to 200 and the next bid was 210 and I put it all the way into 300,000, even though I was out. And I said, whoever it is, fuck them. Um, and I found out afterwards it was the airport that bought it. And I was disappointed because I am such an advocate at the airport and if I had been told, you know, that the airport wanted I wouldn't even bid at the start. But what happened was the man who I went to at the start set me up to, po- to pull it to get more forward off the airport and I just was so disgusted oh you were used as a pawn yeah 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 we were never getting the building it was to drive it up and cost the airport obviously had shown interest in it but you know didn't need it straight away no one was bidding on it it was there 11 years but they needed it for expansion down the road um, wow so I would learn this time I'm going to keep my mouth shut on the next place and nowhere came up and I told Tommy Griffith a good friend of mine Pell Engineering and Tommy goes go down to Swinford it's a big factor there in Swinford or a place where we are sitting here now and I thought, right, I had a big white jeep with big rebarren written all over it. That's staying at home. And I borrowed Marion's car and I shot down here for a look and thought, not bad. But there was a, the round bridge down here was a concern because our barns were high loads. So I rang my uncle who was my truck driver and said, bring the truck and see will it go under the bridge in Swinford. And it did. 
So I met Pat Kelly. Pat Kelly, Toyota owned this place. You physically brought the truck down. I did had to because there was no. If the trailer didn't fit under the bridge, we were wasting our time because we would have to go up into Balavari round, and it was going to be a dead loss. Yeah. And uh, so, for people who don't know, there's a railway bridge here. Yes, there is coming into the town, and it's curved. So in the middle is one height, but at the edges there isn't, and I All had right. to make sure it worked. Right. So I went to Pat Kelly, who owns Pat Kelly Toyota, and he was off sound, and he told me that, look, he bought this place because he couldn't get planning for his garage at the time, and next thing when the sale went through, the garage got planning, and he didn't need it, and he'd rented it to different people. And what was in this warehouse? Uh, a Revo or testing trucks in it, and there was a tyre place before that, and... Uh, Done the deal. Jeez, it took a long time to get all paperwork sorted. It's not simple buying a building if you've never bought one. And we were going moving in the October bank holiday Tuesday. So on the Friday we came down, opened the roller doors, made plans logistically where we're putting stuff. Pat Kelly was here. He gave me the keys. Best of luck, blah, blah, blah. Rocked up here on Tuesday. Went in the door. Hit the roller door. No roller door. Couldn't understand. Went to the next roller door. No roller door. Turned on the lights. No lights. Looked at the fuse board. All trip switches were down. Put them all up. Still nothing. And so all the lids gone off the conduit. Someone had come in that weekend and robbed every inch of fucking cable out of the place. And I was there like devastated. So I rang Pat. Myself and his wife landed and they couldn't believe it. The building had been vacant for six or seven years. And it's like the people knew we were moving in. They knew. They'd been watching it for a while. They were going to have to rob it. So they I just robbed all the cable out of the wall. See, cable is worth money because of copper. And it, industrial uh, wiring is in conduit. So you just lift the lids off. And you'd have, you know, 50 metres of cable and cut uh, them. How much would that be worth to somebody? I And I said this when Pat went away and got quotations. And I remember the, the cheapest quotation was around 40,000. And to, if, to fix it? To fix it. And I remember thinking, if I met these at the gate here and gave them two grand in cash or five grand in cash or even 10 grand in cash, I would have been better off. So Pat was off sound. I said, Pat, the deal is off. I bought a building that was wired. I know it's not your fault. And he goes, we'll go halves. And I didn't have the 20 grand and I was just devastated. Like, But I'm, I'm baffled by this. But what, like, what value would the cable be to them? They would have probably got about 1,200, 1,500 euro for it. What they do is they'd burn it and melt all the plastic off it and then you'd have all the copper and bring it to a scrap merchant. And they sell the copper? Yeah. And they would have made, what, 1,000 euros? Yeah, 1,000, 1,500 euro, yeah. But it totally turned our world upside down. Like, Wow. Turned it upside It was costing you 40 grand, but they only got 1,000, 1,200. Yeah. And Pat went halves with me. He was sound. He went halves. But in the interim, when we were buying the building, the stamp duty changed from, I can't remember at the time, 5% to 12%. So there was another 7% in stamp duty, which I hadn't allocated in my mortgage or budget either. Uh, and I remember that was like another 15 or 20 grand. So between the wiring and the stamp duty, I was up 42,000 more than I had given for the place. But anyways, we got here and... It was brilliant to get our own space and be our own landlords and Jesus, the lads started flourishing straight away and we started making bigger stuff and houses and houses and I remember our open day was class. We put a barn up outside. We had Cone Lamore on from the Sunday business show at the time came down to be the speaker. Anna Mae McHugh from the Ploughing Championships was here and uh, there was all my friends and family, Sean Julian done the food. It was brilliant. And I remember giving the Tommy Marin was here that morning with the roller road van he's the local radio yeah, yeah. and I had said to him um, you know, what do you see this time next year I said I see this place been double the size I see Harrington's trucks backing in concrete making this place bigger I see double the amount of cars and I see a two story house he goes you're a mighty bit of stuff I hope it's here and I'd say it was a year and a half later we had got our extension up we were employing at the time I think we opened we had 12 we had 42 now but we went to 25 I'd say within the year and a half 
we built the two-story house and we had done all the things we'd said we'd doing. And I'm not a man for pen and paper. I'm not a man for writing. But I can see it. Like, I have a great visualisation of it. And uh, I, 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 at the time, sorry, I had to back up to, to, to... When the deal at the airport went tits up, I, I was in a bad spot. I'll be honest now, I didn't think I was going to come out with... In what sense? As like, in, we had all these orders and I couldn't make them in Ballyhonas and I couldn't expand in Ballyhonas and I had no place to go and I was going to let these people down that had ordered their units and I was, had, was banking on the airport. And had you deadlines for the units? Had, of course. And um, and had you the materials got? I had I had certain amount of stuff got, but I took deposits. Like, and the thought of giving a deposit back and, you know, slowing down the growth of your business was killing me. And I, I, I suppose I... I had just envisaged the airport happening. And I had made two great friends years ago on the uh, Young Entrepreneur Competition, which are two twins from Lahardon, Mary and Sarah Murphy. And they invented a gun for Mark and a sheep called Make a Mark. And they were on the Late Late Enterprise show. And I gave them their first opportunity to plough and I let them piggyback on my stand. And I asked Anna Mae But we, we became great friends. And they, uh, Bank of Ireland had asked me to do a talk, or it was Bank of Ireland, I think, in Balnea, their new branch. I was a guest speaker and I was there talking shite about business and like we're doing here now and encouraging people and the two girls were there. And afterwards they said, we want you to meet someone. So they brought over this blonde lady and she goes, this is Tara after and she's a life coach and she, she handed me her business card and lovely to meet you, la 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 la. And I sort of didn't know what, the, I thought like maybe fitness coach. I didn't understand the word at all. But if I get business cards, I put them right at my computer in front of me. So if you give me one today and I take it out of my pocket and put it there, it's the one I'm looking at next, right? So I remember head down, just like fucking this in Ballyhonas and my office was up high looking down and looking at the card and said, you know, I look look her up. So I looked up this life coach and what it did. And but she didn't give you the card because she thought you needed it. It just, no. your paths just crossed. We were, it's a networking thing yeah. at Bank of Ireland. Yeah. So I, uh, I Googled up what it was or looked her up and rang and said, uh, how are you been? You met me the other day in the bank. You might know me. I was wondering, could we meet? And she goes, yeah, is there anything in particular? And I said, look, I'm a business person. There's lots of things and la, 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 la. And she goes, sound. I'll meet you in Mount Falcon. Because at the time she had an office. She's in office now and everything. Um, and she had only started out. B or B Homes make your dream home a reality. We do it all from start to finish. Your one-stop shop to becoming a homeowner. Log on to brbhomes.ie. What pushed you to make that phone call? Like I that's not an easy phone call to make. D- did part of you think Ara and our life coach? It's a bit, it's a bit airy fairy. I needed to talk to someone in the fact that, you know, to your parents. My parents aren't business people. My father was a teacher. My mother was in in um, in community development. Uh, you know, my friends weren't self-employed. All of them. It was hard. It was, there was no one really. And you can't be crying to business people all the time, you know, ringing, fucking people saying, Jesus Christ, what will I do? Poor me. And I thought maybe, you know, looking at what she hit up online, it was making pats and finding ways out things. And I met her in, in Mount Falcon and in this small room. Now, I got married in Mount Falcon, so I knew it. And um, again, it was a small room. It was closed off and I was afraid of people coming in now or whatever. And, you know, why are you here? And I started talking about myself and that, you know, I was dancing around it. And eventually I just said, look, I have a fucking major problem. And explained it and I just broke down and said, I don't think I'm going to get out of this. And fucking I have these people employed and I have deposit taken. And what the fuck will I do? And she sort of broke it all down and said, let it out to fuck. And I did. And I was a fucking mess. And I didn't realise it was as bad till I started talking. And it was once I had it done, it was like, oh. 
you know, it was like a weight lifted. And she goes, right, let's break down the problems. So, okay, we didn't get knock. Where else are we going to get? You know, you need to reach out to people who would be in the know and look online and we'll find it and la, 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 la. And we sort of put a plan in place of what if we don't get a place and can we outsource some of the manufacturing and... And did this all happen in one meeting? It, it, it probably didn't all happen in the one meeting, but I, I don't know the one very soon, seven days later, five days later. And yeah. I felt way better that I had a plan. So she'd write down what I was to do afterwards, as in, you know, these, are, you these are the people we're going to talk to. And I, I love a list. I love crossing off a list and ticking a list. It's just a thing. I, I have a list on my desk. It's I'm what the I same, do. yeah. And I was banging through the list. And then I'd go back and I was sort of solving other problems. Do you know what I mean? That I didn't know I had. And we'd be planning for the future. And, and it definitely changed things. You know, it made it more organised. And then in time to come, she got her own office and brought out the, her diary. I just find it fascinating because I think life coaches can get a bad rep. And Tara is obviously one of the best because she won Life Coach of the Year in 2018 or whatever it was. And I just find it fascinating that you were invited to that meeting and she was there and you crossed paths. And now you're saying that she turned, she pretty much turned your life around. I'm a firm believer in, in good things happen to good people and everything happens for a reason. That's the law of attraction, was really. was 100% like. and I've read the book, The Secret, and to, okay, how can we look at how she changed my life, right? This isn't about her, but no, we're it's talking not, about No, because it's fascinating because I had her on the podcast last season and everyone that that's listening to the podcast knows now who we're talking about. about yeah. And she is life-changing. Well, like, okay, I was, as I said at the start, I was um, diagnosed dyslexia, right? That it's an awful lot of people class that wrong and people make fucking great jokes about it and there's so many stupid jokes about it. You know, I can read some, but I haven't the patience to sit down and read a fucking book. And I, the only two books I'd ever read before I met Tara after was uh, The K, Goodnight Mr. Tom on the Field, because you had to in school. Okay, and um, my dad would have been good enough, he'd, he'd record books on tapes for me that I'd, he knew I'd like. So when I was driving along and I'd listen to them, Wow. This is way back, right? So Tara goes, have you ever heard of Audible? Uh, you know, you should read this book of, of someone, uh, you know, The Seven Habits of Highly Efficient People. I said, Tara, I don't fucking read books. Get Audible. What the fuck is Audible? So she downloaded Audible onto my phone. I remember setting it up, I gave her the credit card and I started to listen to books. And now I'm addicted to Audible. I do not listen to the radio very rarely. I do, sorry, going to work. But if I'm going anywhere, it's Audible. I don't listen to the news anymore. And it totally changed my life. I have listened to the stories of the most famous people in the world and a lot of them narrate their own book, which is unbelievable. So it's like, at the moment, and it's not the type of book I usually get, I have Prince Harry's book and everyone's like, oh, he's tossed and this, that and the other. I wanted to hear a story. He narrates it himself. He took the time to read the fucking book. It's yeah. 12 hours long. And I've had Phil Knight, Nike. I've sat in the car at Phil Knight. Green Lights, um, Matthew McConaughey. I have listened, to, it's like driving along and Matthew McConaughey's in the car beside me and we're having a fucking chat. All right, all right, all right. All right, all right. <laughs> and their stories are unfucking believable And all those stories, whether it be Barack Obama, I've done his, Michelle Obama, you know, Phil Knight, any of these people, they're pretty identical. Everything doesn't work away out, should be shitty childhoods, no matter what way they are. you got to work hard. You believe it'll happen, it'll fucking happen. You put it out there and work hard, it'll fucking happen. And the secret... I've done all the sections of The Secret, uh, Veronda Byrne uh, and her book. And her, her thing is really putting it out there, writing it down, believing it would happen the same as what Tara was trying to tell me. And it has. And I stopped practicing that for a short little period during COVID, right? And I started, you know, going into the anxiety of, I would be sound asleep, but once I'd wake up in the morning, fuck, 
I'm going into work today. Mm. This project has been done. I owe that cunt money. This cunt didn't pay me. I'd be in the shower and it's a habit. And only until you read the books, once the shower went on, you're thinking about the bad things that you thought about yesterday and you get into this bad routine. But when you change it, and this year I have a zenness of, it's going to work out. It will work out. It's going to happen. This man will pay me. That job will happen. I will make that happen. And it does. And, you know, my uncle was laughing at me. When you say this year... This year in particular. So we'll say you came out of COVID. The the COVID thing made it awful hard for business persons. You had to get back up and running. It was like turning off your business for six months a year and then getting it back up and going. I had a lot of fucking drama during COVID because... I employed an awful lot of people and I opened a pub just before COVID and then I had to close my pub and I owed a lot of money on the pub and I, okay, let's let's just take that because I have to explain why I came out of COVID the way I came out of it. Yeah. Um, the pub. They were all forced to close and then they were allowed to open with food and it was like teasing us. We opened and you had to have table service and hand sanitizer and masks and that was sound and what we did is we got the local takeaway menu and you'd order your food and they'd deliver pizza. And we were ticking all the boxes. And then the government changed that. There had to be an outdoor area. And then I built an outdoor area. And then it had to be table service only. And it was table service only. And then it was, uh, you had to be making the food in the premises. But you had to have a food license. And that's not simple because you need a kitchen. Well, can we just set the scene here where your pub is, first of all? So it's, it's in a- the sticks. Eileen's Bar. It's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, so it's, it's in It's your Ahamore. traditional small little pub down in the village. Yes. There's nothing it, else in the village. It was a, the local hardware store, grocery shop and pub. It was closed for um, 35 years. The lady that owned it lived till 107. That's why it was closed for so long. Uh, we bought it, knocked out, kept three walls, knocked the rest, dropped in a modular frame and opened a class pub in the sticks. But so it's just a pub now? Just a pub. Well, it has a class outdoor area. It's a music venue. We do music. Yeah, no, but I mean the hardware is gone. Yes, and all, all that. yeah, that's yeah. gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We believed that the pub is a place in the West of Ireland. And I think, you know, why should I have to travel to Galway and Westport for my night's out and stuff like that? And what would the population of Ahamore be? Cheers, man. I don't know. 1,200. It's not big. Max. Yeah, but we have yeah. Turin and Knock within our parish. Right. And um, we have hurling team and football team and like Turin and all Ireland final this weekend. It's a great community. And I believed we had a place for a pub. And it was working, brilliant, even though we were only open three months. Okay, so we'd music, tried Friday night, band every Saturday night, you know, we'd have short miles in every now and but then. But your people were delighted to have the pub back. It was the light on in the village. Booming. Yeah. It was booming. And we were paying back this loan and everything was going great, but then we'd close. And you were only entitled to the COVID money which if you showed your books from last year. But we had no books from last year. Oh, we only had yes. three months. So we weren't entitled to it. And it was serious pressure to be carrying and as I said, we opened up all the stages, right, you know, and then the stumbling block came with the kitchen. So we applied for our food license, but we had no place to put a kitchen. So we couldn't. And I, I had the factory back open and we had way back before anyone heard of antigen testing. I had a great friend who was a, a business communicator healthcare and he had brought them in. I got some off and, and I said, we'll test them here because I have to keep open to keep this place going as well. And we had to build buildings and we tested everybody every morning. At this stage, the only test we were allowed to do was go into McHale Park, drive yes, in, yes. stick it up the nose, yes. and drive off. And everyone was snubbing at antigen. Yeah. Uh, and we had this whole thing that antigen wasn't this and no... They weren't a thing. They weren't on sale in shops. No, they weren't anywhere. No. You could get them through the communicators, through the wholesaler. And I had them for August, September, October here. I had positive and negative results. Oh, in the factory? In the factory. You were testing everyone coming everyone in? Everyone coming in. Every no. day? It was cost... Sorry. 
it, at the start, when we brought everyone back, we tested for two or three days. After that, it was Mondays and Fridays. And the idea was on the Monday, you were coming back from, we'll say, the dirty, the weekend. You were coming in clean. And on the Friday, we knew you were going out clean. Do you get me? Yeah. And it worked a treat. And we had the lowest rate. No one was off. And this place was running like clockwork. And I was there. Why can't we do the same for the pub? This, no, the pub was sound because we were outdoor and I was happy. Well, you're saying we do the same for the pub. You're on about the customers. I was on about the customers. All right. And this was at the stage when you had to cook the food. So I was pinned. I couldn't go any further and I, I was going to have to close. So I rang the vintners and I said, here's my idea. And I was a member. I paid a federation. And they said, that's a good idea. Let's see how it works and we'll support it. So I rang my solicitor and he said, that's a brilliant idea. And there's nothing in the law that actually stops, you know, the testing element. So let's paint the picture. I wasn't saying it's a free-for-all now that you're tested. You would come in, be tested by a professional. You get inside, table service, sanitise, mask. All the other things were still there. A small crowd, no mixing, family, blah, blah, blah. T- uh, t- uh, traceability, your name, address, where you're from. And this was going to be for locals only. It was about our community and keeping us together and keeping us sane during COVID. We, we put it out that it was going for locals only. And I bought the tests and I had the testers employed and we had was everything Who ready. was doing the tests? So we, we had, Communicare had helped us train Trish here, who had been doing it for three months, all right? Yeah. And then we advertised um, for medic professionals and we got um, a speech therapist and we got a nurse. What was okay. that? What did you say there? We got a speech therapist. A speech therapist? Because their jobs had obviously been stopped. Okay. Due to COVID and they had been become testers. And then I, we had a nurse. She was just qualified training nurse. So, word got out and it started to blow up and the media started to ring. What's this about what's happening? And spoke to the solicitor and he goes, look, we're as well dealing with this properly. Speak to Tommy Mar. You have three people employed now to test people coming into your pub. Yes. How many people would your pub hold? At the time, we wouldn't have been able to hold any more than 30 with restrictions. So you had three people employed. Not full-time, part-time employment for two hours every day. To test potentially 30 people? Yes. Was there even 30? There was. We were taking bookings. Right. Right. So let's wait. Okay. We didn't get too far. Right, okay. okay so it's, let's paint it doesn't the sound like a great business model at the minute now. No, it wasn't. And you weren't going to make huge money out of it, but it was to get the pub back, get the community back, and get us back to some normality. And if it worked in my pub, then maybe they'd roll it out. So in you came, you had to have a booking. Right, Alan's messages the, the phone. I would like a book on Frylene's. Fine, Alan, be there at five past six. Alan comes at five past six, so there's no one else in the testing area. Sit down, fill out this form. Swabbed, test. Alan sits to one side. Barman shouts out, would you like a pint while you're waiting? Yes. Pint is left on a windowsill. Barman disappears. Alan drinks his pint. Alan, you're negative. You can now go in. Alan goes in, sits down and gets a table. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. But you couldn't leave. If you left, you'd be retested. Do you get me? Because inside was clean, outside was dirty. Do you get where I'm coming from? Yeah. Couldn't be wandering up and down the street now. I was tested earlier and come back. Right. So, the media gets hold of this a day or two before we do it. All right. And we, and we had been closed because we had in the kitchen and we were, were reopening whatever day with testing. This hour. Did you put this up on Facebook? They yes. were opening. Okay. Yes. Locals only. So Tommy Marin was the first one. And I told him the story, exactly what happened. And there was, you know, you, antigen isn't there and everyone was arguing. Tommy was fair enough. And he goes, best of luck, la la la. So Should Tommy Marin is the local current affairs presenter. Yes, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And Tommy and me are great old buddies. All right. And uh, then the national media gets a hold of it. So the first big one was Claire Byrne. She puts me up against a doctor. And didn't tell me she was but bringing on a doctor. Tommy brought you on first, did he? And then it went fucking everywhere. 
And what, that, that day you were on Midwest, yes. was, was there much opposition? There wasn't really. They were at the test centre in Knock Airport. And but I mean, were people texting in saying you were a lunatic? Or were there they was saying? a small majority. Most, 90% of it was brilliant. This is the solution. This is what we need. We're all depressed at home. Fair play to you. Yeah, fair play to you. Claire Burma is different now. She had a doctor on. Didn't tell me there was going to be a doctor on. And she let me do my piece first and then said, I'd like to introduce doctor or whoever. And she gave it Wigan. And uh, <laughs> I gave it back to her. But I wasn't a doctor. And I was going off the stats I had from... You know, the, the World Health Agency, Europe, I knew that this was going to tender in Ireland and the man I was buying them off told me, but I wasn't allowed to dob them in because he had signed NDAs. So I couldn't say, well, you dicks, this is going to be all over the country. I knew it was going to happen. And after Claire Burnshire, every paper in the place had it and every radio station was ringing and the office had come into complete carnage here because they knew they were able to get me through Big Red So we went to that evening and we opened, right? And it's at nine o'clock. But before that, you know when it had gone viral and everyone was trying to get you? Yeah. What sense was there then? What what feeling, did what did you think people... I was nervous because, you know, it was all over social media. So were you reading the comments? I, I was for a while and I stopped because it was just tit And the people who supported Antigen were supporting me and people who didn't and they were back and over fighting among themselves in the comments. And what kind of, like, were people kind of saying, were people saying it was a PR stunt? Or? Yes, oh yeah, it's a PR stunt, a lot of them said. But a lot of them hadn't a fucking pub or hadn't debt, so they didn't know nothing about it. So I was there, forget about it. Right. This is a way of us getting back to making money and keeping the bank from seizing everything. So we're inside now. It's tested. There's, uh, it's not nine o'clock. Sorry. This is day it's, one. This day one. It, it probably is half seven, eight o'clock. We're two hours open the stage. Two superintendent walks in the door with two guards. The superintendent? Yes. Top dog. And that's the trump card we never expected. And that's the one we didn't plan for. A normal guard wouldn't have been able to arrest me because I, I hadn't really broken any law. While the superintendent is a superpower. So, huh? yeah, the superintendent can, is different. It's, he's, he's way above the normal guard, right? I never knew that. Yeah. So the superintendent is... The, Superpowers. The, yes. <laughs> so he came in, he was off sound. And he said, you close. I said, it won't close. We need to come outside and talk. And I said, this is the way forward. Uh, I don't care whether it is or it isn't. You have food here tomorrow. Close. I said, I'm not bringing in food. La, well, la, la. You might, have said, you might have said it there already. I'm getting, this is so exciting. How, how long were you open by the time the guards walked in the door? Three hours. So you, you thought, happy we're days. Away with it now. There was no TV crew outside. Yeah. Everything's swinging. Yeah. Happy days. I was having a pint myself. I was in great form. Everyone was clean. Everyone was clean. They were all sitting down at different tables. There was probably 18 in the pub. Like, it Can you remember, was there any negatives that night? None. Oh, no. Everyone was in great form. It was like we were back. You didn't we... have to refuse anyone. No, no, I didn't. There was no positive results. That's sorry. what I meant. Yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. There was yeah. no positive result, which was great. Class. So, um, he was sound and he said, come outside. And um, he said, you have to close. I'm not closing. So, he said, I have to make a call. And he went off making this call. And he asked the other guys to go around taking names. And they said, oh, he's on the phone to... To the head boys in Dublin They rang him to come out He doesn't want to be here No more than the man in the moon La 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 So he came back And he said You have to close I said I'm not closing um, I said I'm telling you This is the way forward And the guards took the name Of everyone who's in there Yeah Because they shouldn't have been in there uh, Well Technically yes. Yeah technically So were they shitting their pants then There they weren't The people that were there People that were shitting their pants Were at home People right. that wanted to be stood up and counted Were out Okay People that had balls were out Brilliant Okay And they were all sound friends and family so we had a very amicable conversation. He started taking a statement and I said, I know for a fact you're using these. The guards are using them. And he goes, I don't know whether they are, they aren't. I can't comment. You have to have food. I said, food doesn't stop COVID. You know that. This is madness. Let's think about this. And he goes, I can't comment on that. You're said, out in the car park having this no, debate. No, we're sitting in the outdoor area at the table. 
And uh, he goes, just close. I said, I'm not closing. This is a point. Now, at this stage, I didn't know that he had, you know, he was going to be able to arrest me. And I was sticking to my guns thinking they're going to have to piss off. And then he goes, I'm telling you, I'm going to have to arrest you if you don't. I said, that's sound. So he goes, uh, Anthony, you say will be held in whatever against you. And he goes, is there anything you want to say? I said, yes. And he goes, what? I said, Mayo for Sam. And I knew he'd write it down and he had to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, he's, I said, uh, I'll get my coat and we'll go. And he goes, um, no, we have to wait for the paddy wagon to get here. I said, why would you bring a paddy wagon on to make a scene? I'll sit into the car with you. I have in my car, I'm off duty. I brought my own car and the two boys came in a Fiesta van. I said, are you serious now that we have to wait? I said, the lads will drop me over to Castle Bear. Don't go bringing over a paddy wagon. He said, I have no choice. So, so once pa- you're arrested, you're their responsibility. Yeah. Like. So the paddy wagon arrived, lovely fella. And he goes, jump in the back, open the door. And my business partner in the pub, John Cunyon, said, I'll ring the solicitor, he'll see you over there. And uh, I sat into the paddy wagon and would go Had up you handcuffs? No. No, no, they were sound. Yeah. And uh, I I never been in the back of it. Like, it's um, enough for a seat and a box around you with glass and you can see the other person in the seat will say opposite you if there was one. No seatbelt or anything. And uh, I took out my phone straight away and I was and I was fucking WhatsApp and next thing your man stopped the van and he came around and opened the door. He goes, Have you a phone? Did anyone search you? I said, Oh no, I d- sorry, I didn't know. And I handed him the phone and the keys and he goes, You've nothing else in your know. Because <laughs> it wasn't as if I was after causing you huge row. Right? I know, yeah. So uh, I was going back thinking, these seats like it's a steel box. If this this yoke turned over, I'd be mangled. Game over. Do you know, like this is mental stuff. I was reinventing a seat in my head that we could sell to the paddy wagon people. <laughs> So we got to Casper Garrett Station and they were lovely and they were sound and put me into an office with your sister and um, he came and we had a chat and he, he his tone had changed and said look no more talking to the media we're probably going to be in court tomorrow morning you're going to be charged super came in he said are you going to charge in Miami la 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 so what were you charged with but I wasn't let's wait oh, sorry. until it comes so uh, we chatted through oh your family and you can't do this and you can't do that you need to be careful and think your business and la la so uh Super came back in, the, the printer wasn't working. Um, we'll bring you in tomorrow or the next day and we'll do this or we'll call out to you. Sound. Because the printer wasn't working? To print this, the charge sheet. I stop. So, um, I went home. and Is that I, a true story? This is all a true... The uh, printer wasn't, wasn't working. working. Pollocky Bill with the jam printer himself only last night. But you're sure... I only have one printer because I'm not making any money, but at Garda Station, <laughs> you'd imagine there'd be 12 printers. Well, this was the story. So... I got home to a very angry wife, upset wife. You know, did you know you're going to be arrested? Did you plan all this? You've made a holy fucking show yourself. She's embarrassed. And you, I, I felt bad. And I explained, she goes, you knew this was going to happen or, you know, um, and I didn't. I did not envisage that at all. That was never planned for. And she was upset. And, and I tried to be upset. So I was going to bed now at two or three in the morning, upset. And she was upset and felt that I'd let everyone down. And next morning, she, when I got up, I had messages from everyone. Because social media had let it out. Someone leaked it. And, you know, there was Snapchats coming in of me wearing prison uniforms and... Photoshop jobs. Yeah, but everyone in the country ringing the office would take the phones that I do interview, do an interview, do an interview. And I said, no, I'm not talking to anyone. So I pissed off out to Clare Island. And I have great friends out there. And I took a day just to clear the head. And I was surrounded by friends. And I came back and I put a statement on social media to say, I apologise for um, anyone I let down. I apologise for wasting the guards' time. I didn't think it would come to this. I totally didn't understand how unresourced they were because there was only two guards in Clamars that night and one of them had to come and get me. And he was telling me this on the way over and I said, like, you know, it's I, that's one shocking thing that I've learned from this. 
And I said, but this isn't the country that I believe in. And I, it's probably there. You'll find it somewhere. And it was, I hit share and that was going to be my last piece on it. I wasn't going to talk about it again. And that went viral and paper shared it that Bernard's made a statement and la 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 and 90 fucking 9% of everyone was there fair play to you blah 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 so three months later two months later I think it was February it's announced that antigen testing has been posted out to everyone's fucking house hang on before we go to that did you do any interviews? no I didn't speak to anyone no one no one I was hard at the time because you wanted to fight your corner and tell your piece and I said Silence will be the best thing. So for months now, everyone just said that fucking Egypt was arrested. And he's he, for the birds. He was trying to be the big man. Yeah. And then... And look where it got him. It's announced on the news some evening and my phone is hopping. Everyone in the place, you were right, now you should bring Claire Byrne and tell her to have it. You know, get her to bring you back on, la 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 la. And the main man, my good friend Tommy Mard, messaged, you'll come on in the morning. I said, I will. And that was going to be the only interview I was going to do. That was it. So we went on and... You know, we talked about what happened and where it was and do you feel vindicated was the big question. And I said, look, someone had to be the person to stand up. Someone had to say, this is fucking madness. And if someone had to take the fall, I was willing to take it. I do apologise for what happened. It wasn't a nice place for my wife. The internet is written in ink, not in pencil. You Google my name now. That's what comes to the top. It's not the man that employed all these people or gave money to charity or builds houses. It's the man that was arrested. And I said... You know, I had to do it. Like, the, the day after it happened to me, I don't know if you remember, a teacher in Clamaris closed a school. Yes. And the government went nuts. Yes. Who the fuck was he to close the school? And There was a big outbreak in that school, wasn't there? It was, there? but and the man was right, because... Students were out, teachers yes. were out. If there was testing, that wouldn't have got that far. Yeah. So, they were falling out with me for testing, and they were falling out with him for closing the school to stop the spread of COVID. It was the iron fist, like, you know... And nobody makes decisions, only us. And I was delighted, yes, that COVID was, or that, that antigen testing was out there. And let's all face it, antigen testing played a key part from then on and helped us get back to normality and still does yeah. help us. So let's forward, and no one has been told this next part, by the way, you're getting exclusive on this. <laughs> we forward on a year. Charge sheet arrives to me in the post. And I'm like, what? I thought this was gone to bed. This antigen testing ever, this is just madness. So I rang my now new solicitor and he said, you'll plead guilty. You pay a few pounds in the poor box and shut up. Forget about it. So I contact my, my now solicitor and he says, you put a poor box fine, you plead guilty, this will be all over and we'll get on with our lives. I said, not a notion. He goes, what is wrong with you? Just get over. So I went to another solicitor in the county and he said the same thing to me. So you were going to be charged? Yeah, I was going to plead guilty. Yeah. And I would get a small poor box fine. But that's there forever, like... And I wasn't happy with that. And at the time, I was listening to my adorable Audible and I was listening to the West Cork uh, murders, Sophie Desconte-Plantier, Ian Bailey. Brilliant podcast. And Ian Bailey's partner had gone to Frank Buttermer, the solicitor in Cork at the time. And Frank Buttermer was the only one willing to take on the case and Frank Buttermer took on the state and bet them and showed that there was no evidence and whatever. Now, I'm not saying Bailey was guilty or innocent. I'm only saying Frank Buttermer, the ball's taken on. So I thought, I need a fucking Frank Buttermer. So I rang Frank Buttermer's office. <laughs> oh, go on. <laughs> and the secretary took my name. And that night then at, I don't know, it was about 10 o'clock. I was upstairs getting changed. Maybe 9 o'clock. This mobile number, I don't know. Hello, Donald Frank Buttermer here. I said, Frank, thank you very much for my call. He goes, you're cracked. And he was laughing. He said, I'd read about you. You know, I haven't a notion to come to Mayo. I've never fucking been to Mayo. He said, I'm a busy man in Cork. I have cases everywhere. 
I said, Frank, who can represent me? I said, because this whole place down here is just all go guilty, go guilty. He said, uh, I'll send you three people's names. Pick the one you want. So he sent me three names. And the one that stood out the most was Michael Staines. Now, Michael Staines is a famous solicitor in Dublin. He would have represented Shawnee Fitz, the banker, Conor McGregor. Did you Google these three names? I did, yeah. And I also rang a friend of mine who was a barrister in Dublin. And he said, Michael Staines, your man. And very reputable. Rang Sean, uh, Michael Staines' offices. You need to pay three hundred and fifty euro. Come up here. Sat down with a, a, a girl in the office. She took down my statement. He'll be on to you if he's going to take in the case. So you pay three hundred and fifty just to be considered. Just to be yeah, because obviously you're wasting. They're busy. Know, people. You're wasting their time. Still lots of weeks' wages. So um, got back to me. Michael Staines liked to see you. So up I went, and um, it's it's right behind the forecourt. It's not very fancy or anything. And in I went, and a big, tall, thin man. Uh, Dublin jerseys in the wall. Big. He he managed Dublin Miners and he's big G man. Anyways, we start talking first. His parents are originally from Newport, and we hit it off on a good note. So he goes, "Why are you here?" So I start with my story. He goes, "I don't want to hear that. Why are you here?" I said, "Because I'm fucking innocent." And he goes, "That's all I want to hear. We'll be in touch." La la la. So he was back in touch. He said, "We're going to go to court and we're going to ask for a full disclosure, all the information of what happened that night and all the gather the information sound." So. Uh, we went to court, Rory, his nephew, myself and Casper, and at this stage then, word is out, Berna is a big dog, he means business, la 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 la. So I rang the super and uh, told him what I was going to do. And I didn't tell him who my sister was, he goes, you're entitled to do that, 100%, me and you aren't going to fall out. He said, I didn't object to your bear licence, I didn't object to your gun licence because I have a gun and they're up for renewal every year. There's no problem though, we, we, we know, you know, you're a good guy and you're entitled to do what you're doing. So, good relationship there. And it was in we go. Of course, everyone sees he's there, and the judge goes, "Oh, welcome down from Dublin, Mr. Staines." And he goes, "I want f- uh, f- full disclosure, and we're pleading innocent or whatever." And so she granted six weeks. We'd have all the documents from the guards. Six weeks later, no documents. So he rings me week seven. He goes, "I've been good. I've given them a week. I'm going to give them one more week. And if it isn't in, we're going for strike out." So um, the day before it was strike out time, the the documents were given. And he said, there's as much paperwork here as a murder trial. So they killed us with paperwork. So he went through it all anyways, and we got witnesses together and with statements, and we wrote everything out, how it happened, and my ID, the plans, newspaper courthouse, all this stuff. So we practised, and gung-ho, Castle Bear, COVID special was set, where anyone that had done anything wrong in COVID was in court. So whether you had a house party or went outside the 10 kilometre limit, you were in court. You know when you said there that they bombarded in paperwork? mm mm-hmm. Like, what kind of stuff? What Statements. Um, from who? From uh, the, the, all the guards that were there, the people who were in the pub, their names, the pictures from what they took that night. Did they take statements from 30 people in the pub? No, but th- th- they had took the guard the statements and they had the guards had took okay. names of all the people and they had pictures of the whole place and uh, articles of what I said in the paper, what was on Facebook, all printed out, like, uh, along with all their own stuff. Um it sounds to me like they were just creating stuff for the crack, really. Well, it was to kill you to, to, with paper, to know that they meant business, like. And I still felt that this is madness. And so we had. Because I'm only thinking in my head, who's the poor person that had to put all that time into collating all these that, Facebook And it's posts. a waste of Gar the time. And let's go back um, now. This it's, a gar, it's a guard that does that. But it's not the Gardaí's fault now. Let's go back. This is the DPP's fault. But there was enough evidence to fucking charge me. And, like, and somebody tied up Googling you, yes, getting cut out. Absolute waste of everyone's time. But this is the problem, and it's the tall poppy syndrome. Burn is to sit down and shut the fuck up and know his place. That's the problem. It's not, this was a good idea, let's actually work on it. It's, 
we with the iron fist will rule. We say what goes. We don't live in Nazi Ireland. People need to understand that. There's a freedom of speech here and you're innocent till proven guilty. Not guilty and then proved innocent. We come to court day, right? Now, no one... I hadn't told the world about this. I didn't put it on social media. I was going to let it play out. Courtroom is packed. Now, Michael Staines comes down the main man. Now, he stands out. Big, big, tall man. Very thin. Wears like a black... Not a cowboy hat, but you know them flat hats? And so he, he looks different. You straight away see him coming in. This is no solicitor from... He's big dick energy. Yes. But awful sound. No bullshit out of him. So everyone knew he was in town. And there was, right, you know, we're coming, we're bringing this evidence, we're running the case. So we all flood into the courtroom. There's a big gang of us. And um, there's, you know, will you plead guilty? No, I'm not pleading guilty. It's sort of conversation between him and whoever. Then it's, um, come outside. Uh, you know, you do know that the guards didn't want to do this. Yeah, I totally understand that. So if the case is withdrawn, will you say that? I said, I have no problem saying that. I don't want to be here. And the super was off sound and he was, you know, it was called DPP versus Donal Byrne. And the guard stood up and said, case withdrawn. And um, Michael Stain stands up and said, Mr. Byrne wants to thank the guard. and didn't understand they had a job to do and he had a point to prove la la la. And outside, and I shook hands with the superintendent and no hard feelings. You know, you're a sound fella. I'm a sound fella. We're the great buddies. Next, now, the, the, you have to remember, this courtroom is packed, Alan. And I know people there from the Independent. I looked at them, radios, newspapers. It wasn't published in one paper. It wasn't published on a radio station. No one heard about it. Now, I went on the piss that evening. What court was this in? Casabar. I, I just I just find it hard to get my head around. How can he just stand up and say it's withdrawn? That's how. Because they knew we meant business. They knew they were going to lose. Yeah. Well, I don't know, did they? And I'm not going to make that judgment and I'm not picking on them. No, it's just fascinating to it me. Was, how it shouldn't have got that far. That's, that's what I'm on. It was a waste of the guard, the resources. Mm. And, it was, and it wasn't the guard that brought it there. The DPP. It was the DPP that brought it there. And you have to remember, you open the Western people or any new local newspaper during the week. Man begged, man found on phone, court case, court case, court case. The smallest thing. This was huge stuff now and nothing in the paper. And everyone was like, oh, do a radio interview. I haven't know I was finished with as far as I was concerned. I proved my point. And a man said to me a long time ago, he said, you take on fucking hell with a bucket of water if you think you're right. <laughs> and I would. And I believe anyone should do the same. You know, so many people tell you, shut up and sit down, Burn. Why are you always wanting to be... That's because I believe in it. And if I believe if something is fucking right or wrong, I'll follow it all the way. When was it thrown out? Uh, November of this year. Not a peep about Not it. Not a peep. And anyone that Googles me to this day probably thinks Byrne is still guilty. And anyone that brings it up to me now, I said, oh yeah, I was proven innocent. Uh, you know, that's gone. It's over. But why didn't you tell everyone? I'm telling you now, not that I'm looking for this to go viral. I'm telling you the truth because I'm not the tight. And it's not about being the big social media crusader for me. I'd another tick off the box. Done. Like your man that told me that I made a product to solve a problem that didn't exist. I've dealt with him. Done. Put to one side. And I'll move on to the next one. Were you disappointed when Tommy Marin didn't ring you the next morning? I wasn't. And I probably could have rang him and said, Tom, bring me on. He probably would have. But why would you have rang him? Like, they're quick to ring you when it's bad news, but nobody's quick to ring you when it's good news. I'm not blaming Tommy on that. No, I'm not even not even saying Tommy specifically. The person I loved. He was the first man that was ringing you and you you were liaising with him, doing the interviews with him. The one I wanted to talk to was Claire Byrne. And I made that known. And I also contacted someone in the note to tell them to make sure she knows. Then, 
she was the one that made me look like the dick with the doctor. Like, you know, if you have someone on, you know, you don't sneak in an expert, by the way. You know, you tell them, I'm bringing on doctor whoever against you. And I, she's the only one I would love her to say, did you read today, folks, that Donald Byrne's case was um, withdrawn and he, he was right in the antigen testing, la, 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 la. And so many people forget, look, I'm sound now, but I can imagine a lot of people's lives are ruined with the media and something happens, a lot of people may never learn the truth. Yeah, she could have made something really interesting, taking sound bites from when you were on first. Yes. Going back, reliving what happened that night, and then bringing you on. Yeah, And saying, Donald, what happened? Definitely. But it doesn't have a big juicy crescendo. No, it doesn't, where it he gets was six just... months in jail and his wife's now divorcing him, you know. And my wife and me, by the way, let's back up my apologies, and she was upset that night. I went to Clare Island for the day, came back the following day, everything was sound. It was tough because, you know, people were talking about You're it. You're very lucky. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And 100%. But look, you're, you know, behind every good man is a good woman. I'm a yeah. firm believer in that. But relationships have gone south for less. Correct. And I 100% have said it to my friends. And I said it in that message. I think if you, you go back to Tommy Maron's interview, for the people who stood up and were counted fair fucking plenty that had balls. And for everyone else that had plenty to say and was the keyboard warrior and was delighted that I was going down the Swanee. You know, I would have loved that they knew that it was all worked out. But anyways, put it behind us. That is some story. That is some story. What's the story then today? Right. So we're, we're in this house. Tell me about this house we're in and bring me on a, on a virtual tour of it here. Okay, I'm not going to kill people about selling the product because then go on the website and see it. And I don't believe in... So know, let, let's want talk to hear a bit so of story. Burn Rapid Build at the moment is a business that builds... Factory built homes. Factory built okay, homes. Okay, let's speed it up. But I'm sitting in the home here now and I don't know this was built in a factory. No, you cannot tell the difference. Okay, our first product, which we spoke about, the one bed has a timber clad and it looks the difference. It looks we, like a timber yes. cabin. When we realised there was such a housing problem, people were coming to us looking for four bed and five bed homes. We realised we need to build a house that meets all the standards. Do so, I need planning permission for that timber cabin? I advise everyone to talk about planning and come in and talk to an engineer. I don't advise anyone building anything without planning. Right. And I don't want, you know, that's Because it's just, it's a hot topic, isn't it? It is, but I, I advise everyone to do it right. And people okay? buying them, putting them out the back of the house and stuff. Yes, and I'm not arguing with that, okay, but I'm advising everyone that they should do things properly. Right. I did things properly. I hired a qualified engineer and I gave him a job of specking our house up that it meets the standard. So it has to meet the INZEB standard for insulation and heat. It has to meet structural standards and all the standards. We met the standards. We had to send a house up to Belfast to have it burnt, fire standards. And then we went for our first plan and permission application, which was in Roscommon, for a house that met the standard. Building control officer came out, passed it. We have now put a house up, I'd say, nearly in every county in Ireland. We have two different types of houses. One that meets all the standards that you can get a mortgage on, which you're sitting in now. There is no difference. Plaster inside, plaster outside. You cannot tell the difference. Barrett's going to be built in six to eight weeks. It's built in a factory. Where do we come with that? You don't get block layers anymore in Young Bucks. You don't get plasters anymore in Young Bucks. They're not doing them wet trades. They're not sexy. You know, they're not the nice jobs. Inside in a factory, environmentally controlled, you can build a house and then it's less time on site. This climate is too wet in this country to be building houses the way we build them. And the costs are kind of too expensive. We're 158 euros a square foot. To build a house out of blocks of mortar is about 2 to 220 a square foot. There's a huge saving there, 50 to 70 euros a square foot. Our house is turnkey comes with kitchens, floors, carpets, not builders finish. But for the layman now that doesn't understand this square foot nonsense, how much would a three-bedroom house cost me? Okay. A good friend of mine built a house um, when he moved into it there before the Christmas. His house was 2,100 and something square foot. I remember pricing him at the time and I was coming in about 220. 
Uh, he told me he was going to do it for the same and I started laughing at him. It took him nearly two years to build it and he sound, and this isn't pulling at him by the way, everyone is trying to build their house the way they want. It cost him 308000 And how many bedrooms were in that? Uh, four bed and I priced it at two twenty. Um 380 versus, versus 220. 220. Yeah. Turnkey. No, yeah. And now he went over spec on some stuff that he wanted, right? But generally we're about 100 grand cheaper. And that's because, it, you know, the, there's less labour in it, all right? There's no slow wet trades in it. You're not so, waiting for the no. weather to pass. And, and there's less carbon footprint. You, you know, there's far less carbon footprint. Concrete has that word and is, is the dirty word at the moment. And look at the pyrite problems, you know. These buildings come with a structural guarantee. We meet the American standard for snow and wind, which is 70% greater than Ireland. Because the big thing everyone has is, it'll blow away. It won't. You know, it's, we're giving you the warranty, the guarantee. I have houses out in Ackle Island, Inish, Turk. What is the uh, warranty? Uh, you get a 25-year structural warranty. The people that are pyrite, what warranty of them? None. And I won't even go into that. And that's an awful scenario that I feel so sorry for those people. But it, modern methods of construction... That's the way the world needs to go. I'm going to tell you a quick story. I was in uh, lucky to be part of an Enterprise Ireland trip to America and they were bringing us to places that wanted us to open businesses. So we brought to a place called Saratoga. Uh, it's a famous race course in New York State and they were bringing us to big warehouses. We'd throw money at you to set up a business here. Why would I want to set up business in Saratoga? Come down and you see our school. Oh great, go and see the school. So I tugged along, didn't realise what was about to happen. So we went to two schools, side by side. Trade school, secondary school. Everybody in first year, second year, third year goes to trade school for the first half of the day from till 12 o'clock. And in the trade school, it was unbelievable. Diggers outside, dumpers, cement mixers, blocks, bricks, inside cars up and lifts, diagnostics, plumbing, wiring. It was class. And then when they get to third year, they make the decision, am I going to academia or am I going to trade? And if they go to academia, they've still learned the basics. They can wire a plug, they can hang a door, you know, they know how to drive a digger, all these little bits. And then if they go down academia they just go back into school and plough on. We're too um, books-orientated or third-level orientated in this country. It is madness. This, the Irish were known for building the, the world, England, the tunnels, you know, Australia, America, all these things. We're not builders anymore. We're techs. And, you know, we have young people with nice fancy white shoes that cannot fucking wire a plug or they... As I look down at my white <laughs> shoes. <laughs> Sorry. Go on. I didn't mean taking your shoes. <laughs> but you know what I mean? They're not hands-on. Like, you should be able to change the oil in your own care. You should be able to hang a shelf. You should be able to do these things, even though you're a computer tech wizard. We need young people to be able to do trades because we're always going to need houses. And this is why we're in a housing crisis and this is why there's a shortage because there's a lack of it. There's a lack of labour and then COVID created a lack of material which drove it up even worse. Well, I'm I'm just fascinated by this house at the minute. So, as I said, bring me on a virtual tour. It's a a two-storey house. And then the, the sitting room kitchen is open plan, as in... It's got a huge glass gable, nearly like, a, you know, the full gable of the house at the front. There's an open plan kitchen living. Open plan is all in. We come in the front door. In the front door, stairs in front of your bedroom to the left. Uh, walk into an open plan kitchen living, then back into the utility. But back. you have your high ceiling there in the kitchen and living. Yes. So, so the, the vaulted, ceiling goes up to the... all the way to the roof. And then and a huge glass window, gable window. Yeah. And then you have upstairs en suite, walk-in wardrobe, you have your plant room with your air ventilation recovery, you have a nice lobby where we're sitting here on the landing. And we're sitting on the top of the landing, two fine big armchairs, loads of room, you'd put a couch and a telly up here. No problem. Yeah. And people have, and the great thing is, you, you when you see all the customers, and we become great friends with our customers, because you get to know them on such an intimate level that you've built a house with them and their family and stories. 
And I go back and have cups of tea when I'm passing and or maybe ask them, do you mind if I bring Alan Clark in? He's never seen one. And, they, you know, they sell the house for you. And they're, first of all, delighted that it hasn't cost them what it was going to cost them, that they can get it faster, that they can actually get a house, you know, they didn't think that they'd be able and all these different things. And we custom build, so you don't have to say, this is the one house we built, you can come to me with plans and we'll build any house. Two things we don't do, Veluxes and Valleys, we don't do them because it eliminates issue. They're the big things that give issue and warranties and time to come. Okay. And the other question I had there is, what's the story with the heat in this house? Because I'm ready to pass out. Yeah, so do, you, do you pump this up now just to sell no, houses? No, I don't. It's air, thermostatically controlled, so it's air ventilation recovery, right? It, the house is airtight. Yeah. All new houses. Remember years ago, you had the four-inch hole in the wall. I'm living in one of them, living. and it's a flipping icebox. Yeah. I no cannot sense. heat it. It made no sense that you'd make a warm house insulation then cut a hole in the wall in every room. I'm putting four or five hundred euros of kerosene a month into a tank. Yeah, well, that's crazy. And I'm not messing with you, The bill for this house for the year is 600 euros. For All the year? All hot water and everything. It's an a 2 rate home. Hang so, on now. Yeah. The heat that I'm experiencing here now yeah. is costing 600 a year. year yeah. Just, this house is only as people. So air ventilation and heat pumps is what we're using, right? So let's so you, take you, it. You show your customers the ESP bill when they come in? Yeah, they can see it, no problem. Um, let's talk about the four-inch hole in the wall yeah. in your house. Mm. Okay. That was to bring fresh air in because you'll have mold and condensation if you don't have fresh air. See that white vent above your head? That's air ventilation recovery. So it sucks the stale air out of the room, pumps it out, takes fresh air in and makes it hot and pumps it back in. It's like a turbo nearly in a car. So you're not letting in cold air. That's where all those old houses in the 90s, the early 2000s, and mine was built in 2005, same thing, or 2007. This four-inch hole blown in cold air into every room. It's mintly stuff. And how much is that system? The air ventilation recovery system is probably about three grand. The air to water heat pump and this stuff with it is probably about 12 grand. They're all included. So you but don't can worry any of them that. break down? They can't. They haven't as of yet. No, there's been a few technical issues. Sometimes you've got to learn, you know, how the settings work and stuff like that. If the house is too small, she works way slower because it's not, it needs to work fast. But I'm just cr- trying to com- compare it to my Firebird 90 that I have that I'm out f- fluting around with every six months. But the problem is, okay, one, you don't own your house, so you're not going to spend a fortune doing it up, right? Yeah. But retrofit a house is key. It has to happen. Like, do you know, you think about it, all the cold air, and you're spending 400 a month on kerosene. It's mental stuff. Oh, it's crazy. Mental stuff. Yeah. Mint. Dead so, money. Oh, I, can't, I just can't get over it. No. I'm just trying to find the problems. There, there are no like, problems. As, as from what well, we it's easy see, for you to say you're building the houses, but ha- like, what's the cons? If There's no tur- cons. If people turn off the air ventilation recovery, you've turned off the fresh air coming in, you will see condensation in the windows. They may ring. Turn it back on. Stop turning it off. Just leave everything as it is. It's all thermostatically controlled. Don't be fiddling with it. Um, yeah. An odd electrical appliance may give an issue. They're on a warranty. We just change them. But there has been no huge call out. There has been no huge drama. One Why would you change an electrical appliance? Because we give a warranty on it. So if, if there's a warranty on the appliance of 24 months, if it's gone, you get it. Oh, well, you're talking turnkey like a yes. washing machine. Yeah, yeah. So we have a deal with Harvey Norman. So you can have full turnkey if you want with furniture from Cass Furniture. Appliance from Harvey Norman. No we well, just bring your clothes. That's it. And walk in. Yeah. And then if somebody, if the washing machine breaks down, they ring you and you have to go slobber and No, Harvey Norman will have the warranty and they'll send out a new warranty. Or That's some service. But look, today uh, I had a call out to the Hudson Bay. We've built units to them. I think we had somebody there within, I don't know, two hours. It was a two minute thing where there was a small leak under a toilet. He put the spanner on it, new bit of tape and away we go. You know, it's great that 
people know that. I get WhatsApps to my own phone. They don't just ring the office if they know me personally. Donald, there's a door here that's stuck a bit sound. Send someone down to adjust it. They're all minor, tiny things. So when I'm, say, project managing this build, I'm mm-hmm. doing it in an office with you. Yes. I'm not doing it out on site. No. Now, the foreman on site, uh, each site's going to have a foreman for different stages. And he'll be our point of contact there. And the customer can liaise with him as well. But we've great staff. Like, they're unreal. The book, we'd get lovely text messages and letters. You were a pleasure to you with the lads who are lovely. They might name two or three individuals in particular that might have done something in their mother's house across the road and lots of little bits. I cannot praise my staff enough. I have men that are with me since the day I started. And we homegrown them. Like... Every good business has to have good staff. If I walk in to get a, if I walk in now and I say to the bank I want a mortgage and I'm going buying a, a BRB home, is it the same as any other home? It isn't with the bank you go to. So at the moment, EBS, TSB, and the Credit Union are the best, and everyone goes, "Oh, but the Credit Union don't lend." The Credit Union lend up to four hundred thousand, and Kieran will say in Clamars Credit Union, "I have got him to lend money to people in Yall." Leash. You don't have to be from the area. This whole thing of you have to have an account. You will have to open one. But uh, they're the three fastest. AIB and Bank of Ireland have been very slow to the market. I'm not afraid to name them and shame them. They had this whole myth that if you default on the mortgage that you'd take it down and move away with it. Will you stop, man? You see this house. Taking this house apart to take weeks. You know, this is very much here permanently. Now, if you wanted to, you could bring us back and we could spend six weeks doing that or four weeks. But we're not going doing that. And it's... People are afraid of change. People are always afraid of things that are new, whether it be the electric car or uh, Heineken, Guinness Zero, Heineken Zero. You know what I mean? Yeah. People are afraid of change and they tackle change immediately. The government are now embracing modular. All you hear is modular. I don't like that word though. I like factory built, factory built, factory built. Because modular is associated with mobile homes. These aren't fucking mobile homes. These are as solid as you will get. The second question I had was, from if I walk in here with 220,000 today, when do I turn the key and walk into my house? At the moment, right, we'll just say you haven't planning, you're walking in and you're coming to us to get planning. I so have a site. You have a site. Uh, we'll, you'll put down 4,500 uh, euro plus the VAT. We will go out, survey the site. We'll dig the trial holes. We'll put the ad in the paper. We'll design your house. You'll happily sign off on the design. We'll put it for planning. They may come back for further information. We'll get you the planning. Bang. We have the plan and got, we file the commencement notice. We file the commencement notice and it's approved. We send our groundworks team to the site. They start digging out. Take them probably two weeks, foundations, pipe work. While that's been done, the house goes down the factory floor. It's probably going to be two to three weeks here in the factory. Then the concrete has been cured lovely for the three, four weeks, whatever time it's going to take. House comes out. The house concrete is in the foundation. Foundations. Yeah. House is stood in typically two days and then they get to roofing it. Um, then in comes the... Um, Chippies, um, electricians, plumbers, they'll first fix wired, first fix plummet, uh, put in your tiling, uh, you'll get your painter in, paint whatever you're going to paint in, second fix it, and in. Six to eight weeks on site, three weeks within the factory usually. Weather dependent. And is there a backlog? There is. You order a house with me at the moment, imagine you have planning, I'm not starting your house till the end of April, beginning of May. <laughs> that's nothing. No, it's not. I know a fella that's waiting on a brand new Jeep. That was supposed to be here the 1st of January. And he was told yesterday he won't have it until May. Well, what probably is going to happen, and I touch wood it mightn't happen, but it, it, we're in talks all the time, is uh, the state need houses now rapid fast. So if we enter into a contract with them for a certain quantity, that will put delay on new customers. Because I'll have to you know, do those 10 or whatever it is. At the moment, it's sound. So if you were very interested and needed something fast, I'd suggest speaking to us sooner rather than later. Um, but... 
the great thing is we have the capacity at the moment to probably do three a week and if we went 24 hours a day we could get to six a week and that's the difference you know most builders a normal builder that builds ordinary one-off houses he may build five or six houses in the year maybe ten you know unless he's a big builder doing a housing estate we're doing you know and then he's dealing with all the different variables yeah. the weather and we're up everything. in 70, 80, 100 houses a year like 100 houses a year yeah and that's not even at full tilt. We had to come. We had to slow down for COVID, speed back up, wait for the lack of materials. We're now nearly cleared that we're back to doing. We could plow out three out of the factory if we wanted to. And if I was thinking about buying one of these houses, I can walk into this house here in Swinford County Mayo. I can walk around it. And if I said, "See that wall there? Can I move that wall out three meters there?" You can, of course. We don't build very rarely. Do we build two houses identically? Everyone's house is different. But look. I advise you pick up the phone, talk to the girls in the office, go on to the website. Um, There's a virtual tour of this on yeah, the website. have a look at it. Just give them a ring and take it from there. What's the name of the website? Uh, brbhomes.ie Okay. It's fascinating. Thank you. No, we love it. And it's... I was trying to explain this to someone the is, other day. Is there... Sorry um, to interrupt you. Is yeah. there anyone else in Ireland doing it? Oh, there is. Yeah. Oh, there is. Lagging Homes, Ourselves. I know. I'm not looking for names or anything. Built. But no, there is. There's not a huge amount of us. You count them on one hand. There's a lot of people bringing in shite. I'm not afraid to say that. Bringing in pure shite. And I call them the Wonder Bra House. They look great from the outside, but when you strip it back, there's nothing behind it. What's behind these walls here is solid steel. And I'm buying it in Thompson Butler's and Balladrine. It's CE marked. We're CE approved. This is a serious quality house. We're not cheap and cheerful. We're at the higher end of the prices of the modular. But by God, this is a serious house. What happens after 25 years if I, I buy this house and I'm thinking, right... I'll have it paid off in 25 years and I want to give it to the young fella. You should give it to him. It's uh, like you would normally give anyone a house. You've got to get a solicitor involved because it's on a plot of land. No, but I'm saying in terms of um, the structure, like what are the things that, that you might need to upkeep? Uh, if you have a timber facade on the outside, which some people do, you need to keep that treated. Uh, if the render gets damaged on the outside because it's external insulation and then render, you need to make sure that it's repaired. And but like it's all superficial it's stuff. All, like, yeah, you need all to clean the gutters like a normal house. You need to make sure your windows are well maintained, hinges and locks. The same as every other house. There's no difference. Like you say, nothing's going to break or not blow away. Or, not at all. Yeah. And when the building control officer from this county came it, for the first house that was to be built in this county, we're planning. And he saw it in the factory. He came two or three times. He watched it on site. He came every day. He was 100% happy. So why are people building... The traditional method. Why are because my grandfather had it and my father had it and we were built out of stone and blocks and mortar. It's in their head. It's a mentality. It's a, like, should no one had electric care and they were laughing at it now? They're everywhere. It just, everything evolves. Okay, let's take the care. A hundred years ago, if we went into Henry Ford's factory and seen the way he built care comparing to now, they're all built by robots and it's the factory line is down to precision and they're churning out, you know, 30 cares a day. And it used to be one a week. Houses, let's take general houses, have been built the same way they were a hundred years ago. There is no difference. Blocks, mortar, muck, concrete, timber, slates, lead, nails, wires. The same way. Let's look at the way we build them. We've come with the times. Factory. And I can go to automation. And I've been to factories in America that go to automation, except they cost millions. So when I draw the house on the computer, I email the drawing out to the saw. The saw pulls in the steel, cuts it all to length. It tacks on the number of the steel. Uh, you'd need a man then to take the steel and push it into a jig and along come a robot welder and weld it all. And then you can roll it down the floor and a machine will come and stick on the plasterboard and all those things. 
we need to move with the times. The rest of the world is doing it. Century Homes were a timber home country in the north of Ireland. They sold up to Kingspan. They moved to America. Gerard Mulcahy. They set up a company in Tarika. Look them up on LinkedIn and watch them building houses with robots. It is unbelievable. I had a discussion with somebody last week, actually. I was, out, I was outside somebody's house and I was looking at the roof and I, I did roofing and carpentry for a while when I left school. And I was just looking at it and I was thinking, wow, that roof, is, it, it, just all the different angles on it, it was fantastic. And I said, your house is lovely, like it's a fantastic house. And he was telling me he built it nine years ago and the bricklayer broke his heart where the, there wasn't, there, I think it was one or two blocks short so in the roof then, when you're taking a piss, you're nearly hitting your head off the roof. Little things like that. Then he said there was, there was blocks, uh, there was one wall that wasn't straight. That's something that just cannot happen. Can't. So the computer automatically will know heights inside and it'll, you know, you can take the little man and move him around to give you your heights. And you can't have any levelling issues yeah. here. Or no, the walls are all perfectly straight. You can't. can't. So it'd be a dream for somebody to come even wallpapering or anything. It's the way construction should be. My God almighty. Fail safe. Like when you think back and look at it pissing rain out there now and a poor buck with a wheelbarrow full of concrete and he's after putting up a few blocks and the rain is hitting them and blowing them to one side and propping gables and misery and misfortune and pulling and dragging and now damp and blight as Pat Short would say. Disaster. We need to come away from it. Sexy eyes construction that a young buck knows he can show up in his sexy fucking schnickers and his measuring tape and his all business within the factory. He can get into his car as clean as he got out with in the morning and not and have a nice care, not a special van covered in mortar and shite. The, we move with the times. The lean process of manufacturing, like what Toyota do, the factory line. What's the future for BRB? Multiples, large housing estates. Um, Is this as big as you can make them, two-storey? No, no, not at all. We can keep going and going and going. I haven't gone to three stories. I don't want to go into uh, apartments no and anything like that. And I'll tell you why, because I hate the city. When I pass the toll bridge in Dublin, I feel like getting sick. I love the countryside. I have never an interest in working in the city. Bear going to an odd show or a football match. I don't want to be in the city. I'm a countryman through and through, and anyone that hates me for it, fuck them. No way. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't want apartments. A couple of quick questions for you. So, are you happy at the moment? Are you happy? I am totally at peace. Very grateful for all I have. I was just, I have this gratefulness thing in Tara's diary that I write down every day. Anyone that doesn't have it, a life compass. And yeah, you know, you write down your gratitude log. Every morning I write down how so grateful I am for a happy and healthy family. And then there'll be three different things every day. I think one or this morning was a customer's name who sent me a lovely note and was very nice. The other thing was the Touring were in the All Ireland final this week. I was offered tickets. The whole country, I think, our county has been offered. Are you tickets. going? I am going. Very Can't good. wait. Big fan, big advocate of touring and hurling for years. Been a sponsor. You have the flags on the car there. As I well. have. I'm. I'm. You know, real advocate for East Mayo and our own club, Bahamore and touring. And I always ask people this question: Do you remember? Do you remember your lowest point? Do you remember that one? Is there one time that you look back on, and you use that as a prop to keep her lit? Yeah, definitely. Okay, let's try and take two examples that I've already spoken about that I'm not going into a story. That once when I was having the pint and my wife came in and told me I got the job, I would have been at a low time then. We'd lost all the music at the music festival. I'd let the lads down. I, you know, I had a shitty job. You know, I'd lost a company. That was a low point. That was a changing point over an email interview that totally changed the course of my life. Um, that time when I, I lost the sale at the airport and I really thought I was fucked, that I couldn't get out of it. And I I'd met Tara at the bank. You know, 
those are the two points uh, and I suppose I would never give up but the big thing and I we do it here with staff my door is always open as one I have a, a thing that you can entitle to go and see and speak to somebody for any office member here it's so important that people talk to people. People throw that out willy-nilly, no, though, like my door is always open. Okay, no, mine is. I have sat down and I have... I have drove staff that were here to a lady, a therapist, that we offer three free counselling sessions per, per, per person. Um, and I... What happened was... And fuck me, I'm, I have your head bushed here. You don't. Uh, we were working the biggest construction site in Europe, Hinkley Point Nuclear Power Station in England. And we worked for Balfour BC... We got all these modular buildings. We signed a contract and one of the things you had to have was a drug policy and drink policy, which I didn't have. And we wrote one and fucked it in a drawer and never saw it again. I dropped the lads to Dublin Airport. I got back here at uh, 8, 9 in the morning. Phone rang. Lad after here testing positive for cocaine. You need to get him removed off the construction site. He's now been put out. And I ran, he rang me. I'm so sorry. I said, get a, get a flight home. I'm not paying for it. Get into my fucking office. So he landed the next day with the head down and he was a lovely fellow, by the way. And I said, what the fuck? And he goes, I'm sorry, I fucked up. I said, sit down, we talk. Like he said, I am not a prune and I understand there's drugs out there and I understand people take a drink and I have never, by the way, taken a drug in my life um, but I have no problem with people that are smoking hash or whatever they're doing. And he, I said, have you a problem? He said, I have. He said, I, I'm totally addicted to cocaine. I'm spending... Most of my wages on it and I, I just live for the Friday and whatever. I have nothing left in one day. And I said, I get your help. He said, but I, look, I'm off the road for doing driving. I said, I don't give a fuck. I'll drive you over to it. You have more for doing than driving me. So I rang your one uh, in Balneage. It's not Tara, by the way. It's a proper uh, counsellor for addiction and whatever. Tara had recommended her. I explained to her my situation and that I wanted to sign up this lad. No problem. So it was a Friday evening and it used to be at six o'clock. Um... We finished work at the same time, so I'd make sure on a Friday he was here, if that he wasn't on the road. Drop him over and leave him off. I'd go and get the car washed, get a few bits. I hadn't told anyone about it. No, my wife knew. And he was very thankful, and we'd be chatting coming home, and he went back playing soccer, and his life started to turn around, and um, it didn't have a full happy ending, and as in it reoccurred, and we parted ways. But I introduced it across the board, that it was there for anyone that wanted to go, you don't have to tell me you're going, you just ring her, and you say, I work for Big Baron, and she'll know if you've been there before, you're entitled to three free sessions, she sends me the invoice and I pay it. And we bought drug kits, and we we done a random test, and two lads failed. And I realised, this is a fucking serious problem in East Mayo. And I couldn't be sending lads back, you see, to Hinkley, that were going to test positive. How okay. how did you test them? Did it's urine. It's urine. No, get, but I mean, if I'm working for you now and you come in... You have to you sign a drugs policy. You have no choice but sign up to it. You sign that before you get the job? Yeah. And Balfour Beatty insisted on it. So if I sent another lad back, and a, a subby we had tested positive, and I couldn't do anything with him because he was going over just to, to do a service for us, and they rang me and said, this man is after testing positive. And he had all this stuff in the back of the truck. He was going over to do the job. And I said, you're a gobshite. You just subbed him in. Yeah. And I said, what the clock? I warned you. And I didn't realize how rampant it is. So when you're on about people knocking on my door, my door is open. I have helped people here that, you know, grievance, probably loads of stuff. And I'm not talking about it. And I don't look for praise about it. But you have to. You have to speak to people. The only way to solve problems is to talk about it. And I might think, geez, no one else has that problem. When you get talking to people, they have that problem. And one other little piece, I do a talk every year in 
Ballyhawns National School or secondary school because uh, I used to go to school there and uh, it's to like an SPC I can't think of the name of the subject but they have to go and work experience for school and the teacher taught me and brought me in and you talk about your business letter and I'd always say anyone's interested uh, you tell them come to you the best students give me their CV and they're welcome to come for a summer job got this lad and he was unreal such a polite lad great worker everyone loved him he became the baby of the place so then he'd come with us on his school holidays he came with us then for we'll say the summer of fourth year fifth year and then he got college and he went off to college and he came with us that's first summer of college and he came back and I knew there was something wrong and I'd been watching him and he wasn't the same fella and he wasn't going home. We were dropping him to Charlestown. He was getting the bus and he was going off to Galway and his skin was gone a grey. And I just rang his mother because I'd have a good relationship with, you know, staff and their parents. And I said, I'm concerned about this lad. And she said to me, we know. Uh, I said, I think he's a drug problem. She goes, we know. We, we've investigated him. We, we we went to his house in, in Galway and we know it and la, 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 la. I said... Look, I'm off, sorry, if there's anything I could do, let me know. So he dropped out of college and um, he, he, a whole load of things went wrong. And I, since I've heard maybe things are back in straight and narrow, but that was the most perfect boy you've ever seen. That lad would come to my house the weekends, help me at the lawn. You know, Jack was only small, he'd be carrying him around. He was from the west of Ireland. He went to the big smoke and he got living in a house with a buck that was taking the gear. And he started taking it. You know, the wants, the sound, but he ended up with a serious fucking problem. But, you know, when you said there he went to the big smoke, it's in every town oh, and it village. Is, sorry. Like I understand it's, it's that. In, it's in Ahamore. Oh, it is. And I'm a publican and, and I have zero Dublin. tolerance on her. Yeah. And I bear the drug dealer. And I made it very well fucking known that there's zero tolerance. And everyone goes, oh, burn is such a dry arse. But now, and, and I want to make it very clear, I've never, I've never had a cigarette. I've never done any drug whatsoever. But I only had this discussion with somebody last night. It's everywhere. It is everywhere. Absolutely but you everywhere. But like, it's sad. People see it as the new drinking. I am the life and soul of a party. This is my point. People are gone so blasé about it. Well, it's only a bit of Charlie. It's only a But bit they'd of pull it out there on the table as if it was a bottle of Corona. But I see more of it here now than was when I was in London. Mm. I was never offered cocaine in London. Maybe I didn't move in those circles and I was a different type of fella. I love a pint. Here, like I have pulled lads aside in the pub and said, I've watched you. I know it. I'm warning you. I'm fucking telling you. And you can see it. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah. And I'm very straight. Yeah. Like, you're welcome to come in and act the ass. By God, if I see white stuff. No, and, I, I, and I've i worked in nightclubs and bars for years. And what happens is, as the night goes on, they get a bit more blasé. But they think they're fooling you. They and just, two or three hours later, you know well. Because he's gone a bit, he's gone too cool now. And he's gone... Do you he, want to meet him the next morning? Yeah. And he's totally depressed. And you can tell. And I could tell the lads coming in here. They don't talk till near the Tuesday, Wednesday. And then they're like the best men at the party on Thursday, Friday. It is ruining people's lives. I admire that open, open door policy because I was working for a place and I really, really liked working there. I really wanted the job and I really liked the job and I was really good at the job. And it's not often that I would blow smoke up my own arse and say I'm good at something because I'd always be the first to, to pick away at myself. But I was hired to do the job and I was doing the job really well. And then and I was given another job. And I said, right, that's grand, I'll do the other job. And then I was given another job and I was given three jobs. And I said, well, that's the job I'm in. And I suck it up. And then maybe two months later, I was given another job and another job. And I said, well, I'll do these other two jobs for a few weeks. But when it, after the few weeks, I have to stop because I can't keep doing them. And it came to, the, came to it anyway. I might have been doing six different jobs and I wasn't able to do the one job that I was hired for at the start. And I went into the boss and I said, look, I didn't agree to do the six jobs 
but I've done them for you for so long. Is there any chance I could just go back to doing the three jobs? And he turned around to me and he said, if you're not happy, there's the door. And I said, well, I'm not happy, so I'll have to take the door. And he said, that's grand. Let me know when you're leaving. Yeah, that's that's not my way of approach, no. Um, but it's horrific, like, it is, it's horrific to think that that but happens out there. But you, that's old school. That's old school. Like, you know, but it's in the person who, who done it, I'm, I, I don't know who they are, but I'm guessing they're way older than me. Yeah. I was in London and seeing how young managers from New Zealand, Australia, America treat people and hire people. And we, we have a team meeting here monthly, okay? And everyone stands around. doesn't matter whether you sweep the floors or you're the, the top dog. Everyone is there. And we, I go through the agenda, what's happening, where we're going, what we're doing, what I think is going to happen this month, any items on it, we, about our football team, whatever. Right, anyone, anything they want to bring up. Before the meeting, anything you want to add to the agenda. After the meeting, I totally understand somebody mightn't have a question here. Come to me afterwards. And people come in afterwards. You know, they might wait till the next day so no one sees them come in. And they might have brilliant suggestions. One man came to me and he said, you know, we used to work uh, in the summertime from eight, seven till five. And then in the wintertime, we do six till eight because the daylight. Sorry, eight till six because the daylight hours. And then he goes, why don't we just do one hour throughout the year that is which what we work now, seven to half four, all year round. And I said, no problem, push to a vote. Went to the next meeting, vote, passed. And then I said to them, right, I cannot afford to give a pay rise last year with COVID because material has gone up. But what I am willing to do is we will now finish early on a Friday if no one takes the piss during the week. Is everyone happy with that? Yeah. So it used to be three, right? And now it's two. And I have promised if no one takes the piss and we get to the time change, it'll be one. And everyone gets a chance, well, I'm not happy with whatever. It cannot be ruled with iron fists like the DPP or the government. It mm. cannot be. Everyone will fuck off. No one wants to work for you. I have people that worked here, left, came back. And it is brilliant to say, well, I can name four people that fucked off and the grass is not always green on the side they came back. And I don't come back and when they come back say, I fucking told you, I'm delighted to have you back. Now you're starting lower. It's come back the way you were. Yeah. We're delighted to have you back. A friend of mine met a multi-multi-millionaire last week and he said to him, I really admire you and I love you and blah, blah, blah and you're so inspirational and I'd love to be like you. And he said to the uh, multi-millionaire, what advice would you give me? And he turned around to him and he said, well, how many hours did you do this week? And your man said, 37 and a half, 38. And your man said, well, that's your first problem. You're not working hard enough. What advice would you give someone wanting to be their own boss or set up their own business? I done the, the crazy hours at the start, and you have to do them at the start. I done that, um, but I was working fast, not smart. I felt if I wasn't stood at a barn or a house, pointing weird stuff went, it didn't go up. And then when I took myself out of that position and put myself in the office planning stuff better and looking at the next job, it worked better. And then, the if, look, we I'm in here in the morning at quarter past six, 20 past six, right? And the rest of them are coming in at seven. It gives me that window. We do more from the hours of 7 o'clock and 10 o'clock here, then a lot of places do in the fucking day. The phones aren't ringing. Everyone is here. It's dark. There's nowhere. They're working away. It totally makes sense. I don't believe that you work 90 hours a week. I believe we used to work weekends. We don't anymore. We finish early on a Friday. People are saying, you need to get every hour out of them. Work them till 6 o'clock on a Friday. What the fuck is wrong with you? No, they appreciate me. They appreciate that. They could easily sit in the van on site till 6 o'clock if they wanted and take the piss. If you'd done that, they embrace that you're looking after them. Like, 
100% if you are sound, they will be sound. I don't believe in that that 90 hour week. Family time. I make sure Sunday we go for dinner. I make sure the Christmas that we're all here closed for two weeks, everyone gets time off. It's awful important you have downtime. I believe for the mental health, the gym, and, you know, whether it's going to Tara, that you take that me time. Even if it's only fucking off to Clare Island for the day like I do, and I could randomly do that at any stage, just hit the car, Carl, what time's the next boat? Gone. That day recharges your battery. So I think that multimillionaire is wrong. Now, I'm not a multimillionaire. As I did say to everyone, I start off with nothing, I've most would left. You know, bollocks, it I can't be the one saying I'm great, but I wouldn't believe in doing that. And if I died in the morning, a good friend of mine had a heart attack a few weeks ago, and the poor man has gone to God. And I was coming home from that funeral, scratching my head, thinking, you know, have I regrets? And I want that if I die tomorrow morning, that I have no regrets. That I fell asleep and gave my wife a kiss and told her I loved her, held her hand, that I came home and I lifted up my children, that I made the dinner, I made the effort, I was sound to the lads at work, I wasn't roaring and shouting, that I left sound and that no one is going to say, good enough, that country of life is gone. Donald, it's been really interesting. Thanks a million and uh, thanks for being so honest because, and this is another thing I say, as well as saying I, I talk to people that I admire, it's very hard to find people that are so honest and say it as it is and not afraid to say it as it is. No, I'm not. And it goes against me some of the time. And <laughs> my poor wife just said to me, you can't say that. Uh, everyone knows me as it is now. And I'll say it as it is. And if they don't like it, fuck the begrudgers. I'm a firm believer of just have the clean conscience. And if it ain't right, say it. You were very clear with me as well that you didn't want this podcast to be an ad. But 60 seconds. Why should I buy a BRB home? Cost effective, fuel effective, um, environmentally effective, Far cheaper, um, you're not going to have the long bill time, and because we're great, we should get both the parachutes. <laughs> Donald Byrne, thanks a million. Gormil Magath, remember it's Fajorlin. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Big News Coming Soon podcast is proudly sponsored by BRB Homes. BRB Homes is Ireland's number one award-winning manufacturer of factory-built homes. We take your home from start to finish. Our homes are A-rated and meet planning regulations. We build to your requirements and your budget. The cost includes your home being turnkey and our chartered engineer's fees. Please get in touch reviewing of our show homes, a brochure, or for more information. Let BRB Homes take the stress out of your build. Check out brbhomes.ie.